0: Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man, who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC, who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning, Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom, Stranger, Etrigan, really and, and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What?
1: What about that one guy? What guy?
0: Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him.
2: He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. And in the most surprising and shocking move of 2020, we're back
1: in like a month. Isn't that amazing? I thought it would be good idea to start to 2020 off with a bang. Uh, who says this is not the fire and water age of wonders? <laughs> I don't know what. I, I don't know where. I, I didn't. I didn't have any. I didn't have any conclusion when I started that sentence. So I'm sorry, I, you, everybody.
2: I totally saw that. <laughs> well, in the interest of getting to this stuff, because this issues.
1: Got an important character for
2: us. Why don't we get rolling here? Let's jump right into our InStock Trades. Folks, this episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, Who's Who episode, uh is sponsored in part by InstockTrades.com. In stock trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collect editions, all for up to forty-two percent off with free shipping for orders of fifty dollars or more. Now, Rob, I know who the featured character on this issue is, so I can't wait to hear your In stock trades pick. What do you got, buddy?
1: Yeah, I have uh, Batman, Tales of the Man-Bat, a trade paperback. (laughs) What? (laughs) I like to keep this relationship fresh. Yeah, this is a collection of uh, Man-Bat stories uh, based on a listing in this book. Uh, It's from Showcase 94, number 11, Man-Bat numbers 1 through 3, and Man-Bat numbers 1 through 5. Those were two different series uh, written by Chuck Dixon and Bruce Jones, art by Henry Flint. The cover uh, is by Michael Golden, and it is this image from Who's Who. Uh, they no just repurposed way. it for the trade, back, trade paperback cover. Uh, it's 200... That says a lot about how good this image is too. Absolutely. It's 216 pages. Normal price is 19.99. dollars 99 trade price, $11.59. That is 42% off. So if you love Man Bat like I do and I know Chris Franklin does, you will want to pick up this collection of uh, tales of Man Bat stories.
2: Now you said this from two different volumes. Is one of those like the 1970s? Era no, Man there Bat? was a
1: '90s, there was a '90s series and a '2000s series, and that's what this collects, plus the showcase. So it's more recent Man Bat stories. Oh, so it's not even the original stuff. That's interesting. No, okay, no.
2: Hmm, okay. All right. Well, my pick is uh, a little more on point, still not exactly. I picked Mara Queen of Atlanta, straight paperback. So this is a recent miniseries written by Dan Abnett, art by Lamadina. We covered it actually on the Fire and Water podcast, that's uh, right. Aquaman and Firestorm show a while back. 144 pages collects the six issue miniseries in by that same title. And it's basically about uh, Mara going back to Zebel and dealing with a lot of the politics, and Orm is there as a prisoner, and it's really an interesting series that I enjoy the heck out of. It's Atlantean politics, so of course Rob only enjoyed it so much. Anyway, um, full color, normally retails for $16.99. You can save 42% and get it for $9.85, and after you're done reading it. Go listen to the uh, Aquaman and Firestorm episode where we talk about it because I think it was a pretty darn good miniseries and a great showcase for Mara. So absolutely. All right, folks, we are going to get into Who's Who in the DC Universe number 12. Now, just a little refresher course for the of you that are joining us for the first time. Rob always makes fun of me, but every month we get people who are just joining the show. So it is a 16-issue miniseries. Uh, now, this, of course, we had the previous incarnations of the run. This particular one is all loose leaf, so you actually get to rip the entries out of the book and sort them in any order you want. It's, uh, therefore, got a pretty hefty price tag of $4.95, which back then was a lot of money. You could buy, like, nine. 97 comic, other regular comics with that. Each issue has 24 entries per issue. On the front side, you have a beautiful art piece. On the back side, you get all that personal data, height, weight, all that kind of stuff. Because Rob gets really hung up on height and weight. It's kind of weird. And at this point, the the Who's Who entries were focused on the DC universe at that time, rather than the entire history of the DC uh, sort of universe or multiverse, whatever. Now, one of the more interesting things that I love and will come into play in this uh, episode as we talk about it are the borders. You've got red for hero, black for villain, blue for sporting cast, and so on and so on. And uh, we're going to see a couple different unusual ones this time. We're going to talk about one that's in the future. And uh, it's, uh, I think they're fun. I love the borders. I love to hear how you guys index those. So we haven't got anyone to write in lately on how they index Thursday, So I know there's some new listeners out there. So I want to hear how you indexed your who's who, And I want to go into an excruciating detail to drive Rob mad.
1: Yeah. For those of you that keep doing that, stop it. Don't tell us if this is your first episode. You can write in, but don't tell us this is your first episode. Please don't listen to him. He's full of crap.
2: Now, our goal is to describe these entries uh, as best as possible for you, so that you don't have to be flipping through the binders. Because I know you've got—I mean, because unfortunately, the two binders you could buy don't really cover everything. Especially if you have the Mayfair in there, you got to buy like a third or fourth binder, and you're flipping back and forth because you know this one is in that one, and you filed it differently, and it takes forever. And it's a pain in the butt. So we're going to do our best to describe these for you, so you don't have to do the heavy lifting. So that's our job, at least my job. Rob doesn't do his job very well, but no, I do not. So, Rob, this is number 12. It was uh, cover dated September 1991, but it was on the shelves January 30th, 1991. Oh, such a good time. And uh, on this cover, there is some guy in orange and green who talks to fish. And it even says, Aquaman swims back into action. Now, I've got a question for you. Uh, Along the top where it says Aquaman swims back into action, why do they feel the need to put a registered trademark on the word Aquaman?
1: Uh, what do you, well, because it's not a logo. Well, because, but the name, they own the name. So okay. The but games. every other name is
2: listed there on the left-hand side of the index. None of them have registered trademarks.
1: Uh, you know, that's a good, yeah. I don't know why I don't, that may, is it cause I it's don't orange know. and green. <laughs> I, <laughs> I maybe, yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they were, maybe that is enough of a typeface that they could consider it a logo. Hmm,
2: very interesting. So, um, anything you want to say about the cover?
1: At all? No, we'll get into it when we get to the listing. I mean, I exci- am I was excited for this issue because it was like, hey, Aquaman gets the cover spot. That didn't happen all that much to uh, the character in the 80s and 90s. So it's exciting.
2: It was. I mean, because he really had been out of the spotlight for a while. And, and we'll get into it. But, yeah, it's just great that he got the cover. Now – as we get into it, the, and and they talk about this, and this matches up with the letters page which is worth mentioning here, the coloring on the cover is slightly different than the coloring on the entry itself. And that's because uh, it's actually done by different colors. They talk about it in the letters page. They give acknowledgments to Bob LaRose, who is the cover colorist. And we've talked about it a few times, uh, the differentiation. And my, my guess is because they have to send these off to Diamond and Capital City Comics and all that stuff so far in advance that they must get it colored early before they get into the, the main issues. All I can think is why they have a different color artist. I don't know. Um, so what else? Uh, well, you know, did, did you see anything on the letters page that was worth mentioning?
1: Not terribly. I mean, I thought the, <laughs> the first letter by Joseph Dwee was, like, very, very confused about these, like... I'm confused. In Hawkman's entry, you said that the Brave and Bold number 34 is from March 1961, yet in Huzu number 8's entry, you said that date of the comic was February, March 1961. Which is it? Like, he's really mad about that. It's just kind of like, it's not that big of a deal, Joseph. It's, it's fine. So you know how you love
2: to do that voice you do where you like, please send me a corrected copy.
1: <laughs> yes. I
2: exactly. actually heard a friend of mine. Uh, he was a, he, he he was basically doing your impersonation of that impersonation because uh, we were talking about making corrected copies of something. And so he used your impersonation because he listens to the show uh, in the thing. Okay. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Rob has a, a disciple. That's a terrifying. God, we're
1: incepting here because he's doing my impersonation of someone else's impersonation of that type of person. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
2: Uh, A couple other things I noticed in the letters page here, they do talk about how they're going to be adding in the history of the DCU pages. So, Rob, that's one more border color for you to memorize, buddy. Isn't that exciting?
1: Oh, I'm I'm Uh, just quivering with excitement.
2: We'll have – they they promised us entries on major events like Crisis, Invasion. Uh, They mentioned Millennium. I don't consider that, you know, maybe a major (laughs) – event. but anyway, that's personal preference. And one other thing worth mentioning is that this issue is on the shelves the same month as Impact Who's Who number 1, which is also in the loosely format. And we will need to deal with that at some point, Rob, because we don't want to end the show with that, as Frank mentions every single month in his comments. So we'll have to figure out how we want to approach that.
1: Well, we've already figured that out. We we Don't worry, everybody. We have a plan of how we're going to handle that. We're, we're good.
2: The problem is we started the show seven years ago, so I don't remember what the plan is. Anyway. Okay.
1: Well, we're going to um, do it. Trust me.
2: Rob, I, I wrote it down. Okay.
1: Rob, this issue is featured the
2: man who talks to fish, so this is all yours, buddy. Why don't you
1: take it away? Right. Well, the first listing is, of course, Aquaman <laughs> uh, by Ken Hooper and Bob Dvorak. And the, as Shag mentioned, this issue was on sale July 30, 1991. The Aquaman series that this is previewing did not come out until October of 1991. So this is a full two months ahead of the game in terms of the art style because Ken Cooper was the artist for the upcoming Aquaman series, but that series had not yet debuted.
2: It's sort of interesting. This is a sort of a weird time in Aquaman's history too because we've gotten the... Legend of Aquaman, is that what it was called? The Legend of Aquaman? Man's yeah, series? the one shot. One shot, yeah. yeah. That, re- that gave you a post-crisis version of Aquaman's history where they changed it where rather than being the son of a lighthouse keeper and the Queen of Atlantis, he was the uh, Queen of Atlantis' son who was put up on Mercy Reef. But if you read the entry, it's very interesting here. It talks about the Mercy Reef thing, but they say that Aquaman himself isn't aware of that. They say he thinks he's the son of, of Tom Arthur. And right. Atlantis. It's a blend. It's kind of a
1: blending of the two origins here.
2: And this won't last long at all. I mean, this is a snapshot in history that didn't last for long. So it's sort of interesting this, this version of Aquaman or this, you know, is, is, is unusual. They also, I found it interesting in the powers and weapons, they, they get very, very specific about his speed. Like, like almost like role-playing style. I mean, they mention he goes 87 nautical miles an hour. Wow, that's specific. Okay, I'm not sure why they got they settled on that particular speed. They also take a lot of time to talk about his water weakness on the land, and that is something that, that the series you just mentioned, the one that starts in a couple of months, they actually did a whole issue dedicated to that, where he's he, they're doing a running battle across a, a metropolitan city, and he's fighting I want to say um, NKV uh, B, uh, demon. And, yeah, the NKV demon. Yeah. Yep, and it's raining. And so the rain is actually recharging his strength. And uh, I I want to say that that was something they were looking to get at. Now, the text here is written by Kevin Dooley, but he didn't write the series, right?
1: No, that was written by Sean McLaughlin. Right. And uh,
2: by the way, in case there is anybody out there who doesn't know this, and I don't see how possible, uh, even though this is the Who's Who show – uh, this network got started by doing an Aquaman and Firestorm podcast, so that's why Rob and I have such a love for this. Uh, I really want to talk about this Aquaman series at some point because there are some dangling subplots that Sean introduced that never got resolved that I've got thoughts on, and I don't want to talk about it, damn it. So uh, can we do that
1: sometime? Yeah, there, there was a, there was a, that was a good series. Um, I, regarding the powers and weapons, there's one little detail that I always feel like if you get too specific with Aquaman's powers, it all starts to fall apart. But they talk about that he can... <laughs> (laughs) direct communicate with most sea life, and it says the telekinetic power varies with the creature he's communicating with. For instance, a guppy will react as if given a command, but a dolphin may argue with him. That just sounds... Kind of dumb. <laughs> they left all that out. I don't know. We need to get that specific about it. You mentioned the thing about uh, he gets recharged from you know being able to absorb water. That was something that Neil Posner uh, kind of really retconned in with hmm. the 1985 miniseries because before that, just you know in Justice League Adventures in the 60s, Aquaman was always having to stop the battle to get a shower, and it just looked ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so Neil I remember Pos- that. Yeah, so Neil Posner finally did away with that and basically said, look, it, he doesn't die after an hour. Uh, all he needs to do is be connected to some form of moisture, and he'll be fine. And then every, every writer has taken that since and kind of done something with it. I mean even in the DC Challenge when he's stranded in the desert, he bites into a a, a vulture's neck. And because you know blood is mostly water, that's enough to re- to restore him. So they kind of got away a with all that. Um, Remember that issue
2: where he stopped and drank a tab? Just to keep going, that was good. I, <laughs>
1: uh, I will have to say I'm not that huge a fan of this listing uh, because I'm just not that big a fan of Ken Hooper's artwork. I think this is a pretty dull pose. Um, I mean the, the cover copy, it says Aquaman swims back into action, and there's nothing action-y about this pose. He's just sort mm-hmm. of floating. Uh, the sea life is, is well-drawn. There's a turtle and an eel and some goldfish and shark and octopus, and you see Atlantis in the background. But it's you a think, pretty – You think that's, that's Topa. Uh, I think it's always topo if it's an octopus. Um But it's a pretty dull image. I mean, he's just sort of floating there. There's not a lot of movement to it. He's very, very small on the uh, on the whole page. Like, he doesn't take up much. It's just – and this was an overall problem I had with Ken Hooper's work in the series. It, it's just a fair – I really like Sean McLaughlin's stories, but uh, they're just not – I don't think they're drawn very, very excitingly. Uh, I, it, it, this This image is – Okay, but nothing more than that.
2: I I have similar – well, okay. I'm going to meet you halfway in the middle. Uh, I agree Aquaman's pose is just completely boring. It's not – part of it is the angle. You're you're looking almost straight on at him like he's swimming towards you, so therefore you don't actually see much of his body. But but I do feel like there's movement. I feel like with the bubbles and the hair, I feel like there's movement. But it's just not very exciting because you don't see much of the body and the dynamism. Now, the the sea life – isn't just drawn well; they're drawn exceptionally well. The sea life look gorgeous, man. I love the turtle and the fish and the octopus. I mean, they're just stunning. Like I could look at a whole book of just the fish. That would have been very pleasant to look at. But yeah, and, um, the Aquaman himself is—I is, I like the face, but it's just—it's disappointing, unfortunately. Yeah, now, look I at mean, the look at the inset pictures real quick. Yeah, that the shot of the Justice League there. Now I realize it's a little, you know, because it's shrunk down. It's a little not undefined on some of the lines, but that looks a lot like like the Barry Kitson JLA Year One style to me. Like if, if someone to- showed me that image
1: and told me it was from Year One, I'd probably believe them. Hmm, maybe so. I mean, uh, I think it seems I. Th- I feel like it's drawn specific for this because Aquaman's front oh, and center, is. which he was not generally in that uh, series. And then the other instead is him and Manta uh, fighting each other with uh, Arthur Jr. in the little air bubble, and then we see Mirror in the background. I mean, look, I know why Ken Hooper drew this is because they, again they were previewing the new series. But as we learned last issue, Gina Mapparo was available for zoo mm. listings, and it's a darn shame that they didn't maybe grab Jim one last time to draw Aquaman because uh, again it, that wouldn't have served as a commercial for the new series, but it's it's a shame just because I think it's I think this is a missed opportunity. Now, luckily, uh, this is not the only Aquaman related uh, listing in the book, and there's another much better one coming down the pike. What they should have done because no they got
2: <laughs> what they <laughs> oh god what they got was uh, they got Kevin Maguire to draw the first few covers of that series. Um, mm, if yes, you the there's a which which also I had some issues with like some anatomy issues, but there was a fantastic promo drawing that I don't think appeared anywhere except for a promo drawing. I was given the, at Dragon Con in Atlanta uh, by some of the DC editors in 1991, uh, I guess in August or, or whenever. Um, whenever Dragon Con was, because they used to, they changed dates a couple times. Anyway, they handed me a, a Xerox copy and a sticker of Aquaman and it said something like uh it was an ecological focus. It was basically about yeah, save the earth. There's, there's time and it's Aquaman standing there holding a bird that's covered in oil because you know Exxon oh God, Valdez was yeah, on. I've
1: seen that one. Yeah, yeah,
2: I like it. Okay, you yeah, hear you laughing, but it was a great little image. I can't remember if that was Ken Hooper or if that was Kevin McGuire. I, it's, I Ken it it's Ken okay. Hooper. It's Ken.
1: I've seen them. there. There was a couple of them, and they're all Ken Hooper. And that would have been more effective than this,
2: um, I think. And it, that would have been drawn by this point, I think.
1: So, um, that's, you know,
2: I would have preferred to see that. But anyway, so we're, we're, we're beating on this too much. When well, you guys see the
1: entry, you're going to be like, Oh, actually, it's not bad. So it's, no, um, it's not that bad. It's just, you know, uh, it's my, it's my guy, you know, <laughs> He's waiting exactly. to get a hoosier listing. It's kind of like, eh, all right. So anyway, uh, I, yes. I got, I got, well, I mean, I'm spending more time in this one because of our,
2: <laughs> our network. Don't worry, but it got to point out something else. Um, first appearance. Only March. one. No mm-hmm. current incarnation. No uh no nothing else, just the, the nineteen forty was it, nineteen
1: forty one appearance, yep. right? No modern so, no, it's all just more fun comics number seventy three in November nineteen forty one. You know what that supports? That supports my feeling <sighs> That there's
2: never been a separation between an Earth-1 and Earth-2 Aquaman. It's all been the Golden Age Aquaman just continued his ventures all the way to modern day. And whatever version of Aquaman you're talking about, it's all, all the same version. There wasn't two versions of Aquaman. So Just okay. point that right. out. All right. Fine. <laughs> Hold on. Let me go through my notes. I had something else here. <laughs> Isn't this fun for you listening to me read my notes? Um, We should mention the border is red. Uh, We did mention Kevin Dooley did that. Um, And for more information on Aquaman, there's a couple of places. There's a website called Aquaman Shrine. There is a Twitter account called Aquaman Well, there used to be. There used to be a website. If you want to go look at a site without any images, that's a place to go. Um, There's also a podcast called Aquaman and Firestorm, the fire and water podcast. And there
1: was a movie I heard, but I don't think it did very well. So um, that's, yeah, that's about it. All right, have you extended this far enough now, or do you want to just keep vamping? You know, I feel like it was necessary. Believe me, I don't have that much to say about Silver Banshee. Okay. All right, (laughs) well, next up, we have Bibbo. (laughs) Uh, Bibbo, everybody's our favorite. It says it right there. There's a guy holding up a sign. It says Bibbo, our favorite. Drawn by uh, Jerry, the extraordinary Ordway. Uh, First appearance from Adventure Comics. uh, Excuse me. Adventure Superman number 428. I love... This image now I Bibbo really? was not okay, yeah, B- B- bibo is not a character i 'm terribly familiar with. I, I did read some of Superman comics from this time, but i don 't remember uh, that much from him. I, I know kind of the whole gist of him. I love the drawing it 's by Jerry Ordway I mean of course I do the, it's and by I love the Orster the, the Orster <laughs> The insets are great. the profile drawing his little driver 's license photo is fantastic. The only thing i don 't like is the logo. I really wish they had come up with something a little more. Hmm. Uh, stylistic than just that boring bibbo typeface. You know, I feel it does okay. not fit with the drawing. But but otherwise, the, the shot of him holding up the beer and he's got the sh- shirt saying Superman's pal and his beer stained and there's all these guys from the back. There's one guy passed out from drinking. It's just a really, it's a wonderfully fun drawing.
2: So there's a couple of things you got to mention. I love I love the, sh- the 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 Sane shirt with his gut hanging out underneath it. Like it's too uh, his gut's too big. And, and he did steal sort of the Superman's pal moniker from Jimmy right. Olsen, which is fun. Uh, a couple of things. I, it took me a while to notice. On the far left, there's a guy in a yellow shirt. And at first, I thought he's wearing a bow tie, but then I realized he's not. He's getting slapped on the back, and his dentures are his falling dentures out. Dentures are flying out. Yeah, yeah, that is hilarious. And then look at the guy who's patting him on the back. You know okay. who I think that is? I have no look idea. on the other side of Bibbo.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's okay. Andy Cap. I think it's supposed to be a tribute to Andy Cap. Oh, Andy Cap and Flo. Oh, because yeah. a woman that looks like Flo. Oh, geez. Oh, yeah. That, Isn't that great? That's uh, that seems a that seems far fetched. But when you look at it, I go maybe not. Because yeah, it maybe could really be Andy Cap. He <laughs> needs to have a bag of hot fries or something with him. Or, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> but it's it's in
2: the, a bar. I mean, come on, perfect place. That's true. It Could be. Yeah. So I, I love the image, uh, the inset. That the, now, for those of you who are watching the Titans TV show on um, the DC Universe app, because because we don't tend to put the backside on these things, I don't know if I'm going to put the backside up. But Google the Bibbo Who's Who entry and look at his inset picture where he's, he's smiling and he's got his teeth knocked out. That looks like the dude who's playing Hawk. On uh, the DC Universe app, which is also the same actor who played Aquaman, by the way, in Smallville, but that's what he looks like in the DC uh, Titan show. It's it's crazy; like he could
1: be perfect for this. It's great. Hmm. All right, uh, I love that the drawings are great, and there's there's one of him squaring off against Lobo, and then another one. Where he's punching Superman, and Superman is saying ho-hum, which is one of the rare times you see a word balloon in one of these insets. And then the third one is this little thing of uh, Bibbo winning the lottery. It's like a little newspaper drawing, which is great. They're very, very they're, – I love the insets. They're very uh, yeah. distinctive. The One thing I didn't – remember, Bibbo is a very, very beloved character
2: from this era. I mean everyone loves this guy. And the thing I had forgotten about with the lottery ticket – or maybe I didn't know. I knew he won the lottery. But it says here that Jose Delgado, the gangbuster whose life was always challenging and difficult, he had the ticket first. And he lost it and Bibbo got it. Like, oh, poor Jose. Just life – the life just keeps beating on that guy. So sad. Oh, my gosh. So, um, the border is blue for supporting cast, but you know what? If it had been red for hero, I would have been okay with that. Uh, Written by the brilliant Roger Stern, who was writing the Superman comics at the time, and the first appearance here is Adventures of Superman, number four twenty-eight. so it was May 1987, so he's a fairly recent addition to the Superman mythos. And he made frequent appearances here, and at this point, Action Comics was on issue number 668, which was the series that was being written by Roger Stern at the time. And if you want more on the character, the most likely place would be to go is uh, the From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast starring our buddy Michael Bailey.
1: All right, next up are Blasters. Uh, <laughs> next is Blue Jay and Silver Sorcerers. We gotta say a few things about Blasters. Right, uh, do we? Do we really? I mean Snapper Cards on the team. Do we really need to get into it? I mean <laughs> Sis- I we know don't Ciscoy devoted Devo- a whole devoted a whole episode to this to this book. I I other than this Who's Who listing and that episode that Siskoi did, I know zip about the blaster. I, I I hate that they're just blasters. They the Blasters. that's annoying to me as well. So uh, a few
2: things to say. So part of the sad part of their origin is that they captured all these human beings to figure out, like, what is the genetic potential for humans to develop superpowers? They, They tried to kill 50 people. And six of them survived. And so the alien alliance went, oh my gosh, There's the, the potential for humans to gain powers is really, really high. So therefore the invasion occurred. So, they, so were, they were sort of the catalyst for the invasion happening, which is sort of depressing. And when Siskoid, our buddy Siskoid, who does the First Strike Invasion podcast, as Rob mentioned, did a whole episode. And basically he read the blaster special and said, you know what? It's actually really, really fun. Even though people make fun of the blasters, he says it's sort of got a Guardians of the Galaxy vibe to it. And uh, written by Peter David. And he said it's a it's a so um, uh, it turns out the Blaster special was a very elusive comic for me. I searched for it for years because I had these lists on the, uh, of every superhero's appearance that I was searching for. I was searching for every Firestorm appearance, every Aquaman appearance, and Blasters was on both of them. So I'm like, oh, well, okay, both Firestorm and Aquaman. I, I got to search for this. I searched for years, finally found the damn thing. It is one panel, and I'm not even sure they were colored. I, I was so pissed when I got to that. It's, it's what I call the uh, the collector's burden when you have to find every single appearance, and then you get there and you're like, that wasn't worth all that effort. <laughs> but um, so Robert Lauren Fleming was really the, the the brains or the heart behind the Blasters. He's the one who sort of pushed them forward. He brought them back. At, they did the Blaster special, which was written by Peter David. Then he brought them back for some issues of Valor, which was uh, a little bit in their future. Like like at this point in time, the Blaster special had been two years prior. Valor was two years in the future. Uh, My biggest criticism of the entry – because I do like the art by um, James Fry and Robert Campanella. I like the art on the front. It's actually kind of cool. It's sort of cartoony. I like the faces. It looks a little Kirby-ish to me, like some of the faces, like the woman sitting in the chair especially. looks a little bit like some of Kirby stuff. I like it. But – my biggest criticism, it's really kind of hard to match the names to the characters. Like the, the text, uh, which is written by Robert Greenberger, uh, isn't done in such a way that it's necessarily easy to go, oh, that character is that one, and that character is that one, and that one's it's, – it's a little harder to match that up. So that's, that's one criticism. Um. Gosh. Uh. So really. Uh. The, oh. The only other thing is there is a character named Frag in here, which I've never heard anyone talk about this. But Frag sounds to me exactly like the villain Shrapnel, who became a pretty big deal in DC Comics. So it seems odd that both these characters would be almost identical. Which is, and he looks characters. just like him too. Yeah. Exactly. Even you know who Shrapnel is. That's impressive. Wow. Okay. So um, that's about all I've got to mention on this. So um, you know, the the border is red for hero team. And first appearance is uh, in Invasion, actually, number one from 1988.
1: All right. Let's move on. Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress, who uh, first appeared way back in Justice League of America number 87, the original series, but then got brought back for JLI. Of course, Shag, even covering that. Uh, Here it's drawn by Bart Sears and Terry Austin. And we get a sense of uh, how big Blue Jay is because we're in the foreground. We see a pencil. Uh, yes, so uh, so they and I said these are the two. Of the, they're the sort of the alternate uh, Avengers characters that were sort of the, the you know that appeared in in JLA as a sort of parody, and then they sort of really became their own sorts of things uh, at this point. They were they were there was a third one. There was what Wanjinda was the yeah. name is the third guy. And he died. In Justice League of America – I mean Justice League International, what, number three, I believe? Does uh, in Well, he he gave – we thought he
2: gave his life, but it turns out he lived for a little bit longer uh, and then was corrupted by the Queen Bee. And I think he died around issue 16 or 17, actually. Okay.
1: All right. But but I mean so the Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress are the ones that survived, and uh, they get those – and Blue Jay, as we see, is in the foreground, and he is – as drawn by Burt Sears, as usual, these people are – Muscled within an inch of their lives. (laughs) He was like muscles (laughs) on top of muscles. And so Blue Jay is so powerfully built you wonder how he even has enough lift to get off the ground even with the wings (laughs) because he's so – and yet when you say he's weight, 150 pounds, when he's using his power, he's only three pounds. So he's super cute. Yeah,
2: He's adorbs. (laughs) He's adorbs. Silver Sorceress, very sexy in the background. No silver, but very sexy. Um, so it, to be specific, they are uh, analogs for uh, Scarlet Witch, and he's an analog for. Well, you can take your pick whether you want to be Yellow Jacket or Ant Man. Either way, um, so that that's their. Or it might even be a Scott Lang uh, Ant Man. I'm not sure. Either way, to. To be specific about what you're saying about them appearing in JLA, it was that same month where Avengers had the Squadron Sinister, right. and the JLA writers agreed to have some Avengers analogs. And really, Squadron Sinister was the much better of that deal because <laughs> there were a bunch more heroes of Angor. Uh, there was a there was a there was a Speedster, there was a Captain American, there was a bunch of different versions of them. Either way, these are the two that lasted. And at this point, they are actually on our Earth, and they've joined Justice League Europe at this point. So it no, was don't, sort don't of thank anybody. That is fairly true. Uh, one thing to note, uh, just because of I pay attention to these kinds of things, previously the Silver Sorcerers had an open stomach outfit. Like, you, there was a cutout where her bare Midriff was showing. Uh, they have apparently gotten rid of that here, and it's also gone on the inset, which I thought was kind of interesting, because she had that for a long, long time. And, um, now, they're, under the first appearances, they really needed, like, a current version indication, I think, uh, because they really did. The, the appearance years ago in Justice League versus what they did with them in Justice League International is really very, very different, so I think should they should have merited that, but I like the Bart Sears drawing. I think it looks great. I, I love the, the, again, the pencil for the reference. I think she's gorgeous and sexy in the background. I like sort of the the effects going on. I dig it. I think Blue Jay's costume looks pretty cool for a bird dude, you know? Anyway, uh, text is by Kevin... Well, you don't want to go so far. Text is by Kevin Dooley. Border is red for heroes. And uh, at this point, uh, they would have been appearing in Justice League Europe number 29, which is uh, the breakdowns period of Justice League has started. Love it or hate it, it was pretty important in the Justice League international era and for more on them you could listen to oh i don't know justice league
1: international blah ha, ha podcast every month of who's who is just a big plug for jla podcast for pete's sakes well
2: i'm just saying we are in that era where yeah well that's Avengers right we work. can't
1: help it yeah, yeah yeah so just
2: wait for all those aquaman villains to start rolling <laughs> when the aquaman series rolls we'll that's be talking right. about you know That guy. Yeah, right. Exactly. There
1: really weren't any. Okay. You're up. All right. Let's move on. Uh, Chessire, or Chessire, however you want to say it. Uh, Of course, the character created from the New Teen Titans. First appeared in New Teen Titans, Angel Number 2 by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Here it's drawn by Colleen Doran and, once again, Terry Austin. Uh, I really like this listing. I think it's very dynamic. She's jumping in the air, and there's all these ray beams being shot at her, and there's this sort of – kaleidoscope effect of colors behind her. She's in mostly green, and then you've got a lot of magenta and purples, and for once, the logo is actually a logo. It's a nice, uh, it's mm. not just sort of a typeface. It's actually drawn out. It's got a slight arc to it, and then in the back, we see her with uh, Speedy, of which she sired a child. We see her uh, taking on Wonder Girl, and then we see her kind of doing a sexy siren spy pose, and then the inset, again, is really beautiful. I love this combination of Colleen Doran and Terry Austin. I think it's really slick?
2: I'm glad somebody does, uh, because I do not. I am not a fan of this piece, by any means. I I do like the fact she's moving. I like the motion. I like the way her hair is splayed out. I do like the explosion sort of stuff in the background. But the figure work and the costume... Part of the problem is Cheshire's costume is another one of these George Perez costumes that look great when he does it, and when other people do it, it's really, really difficult to do. Uh, So I, I This this piece really does almost nothing for me visually. Oh my so,
1: God, what?
2: Yeah, yeah. Seriously, I'm sorry. I mean, she's hot, she's sexy, but it's, as far as just the look of it, it's I got nothing. So, um, it, it it might be part now. The inset picture, she's beautiful in the little like class, you know, senior class photo thing. But uh, otherwise, eh. Now, now, I I part of me is I've always had a problem with this character because to me, it's like, oh look, it's Cheshire, the martial arts awesome character, and then next month they're fighting Lady Shiva, the awesome martial arts character. <laughs> they they seem completely interchangeable to me. Uh, the only difference there is, is Cheshire is into poisons. And then once you roll in the the daughter, Leanne, who was the greatest addition, by the way, for this character and speedy, Leanne was wonderful, uh, that character. Otherwise, not so
1: interesting. Did you read who uh, in the entry who raised her? Uh, well, I did, but now I don't remember. <laughs> oh. Wen Chan from the Blackhawks. From Hawks. the Blackhawks, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's crazy! That's cool. so. I dig that. I like that a lot. I mean, yeah, I generally, really cool. I, I'm generally not a big fan of tying everything in together, uh, but I kind of like that. Anytime you're going to work the Blackhawks into it, I'm I'm sort of happy with it. So that's I cool. You, I yeah. knew you'd
2: be happy about that. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it a lot. I think it's. I think it's sharp. I I think it's uh, by getting Colleen Doran to do yeah. it. It's sexy without being kind of like overly cheesecake. Like it's. That's fair. you know, She's we'll a beautiful that, woman, but it's not. You know, her proportions are. Yeah, they're still. You know, super hot female superhero proportions, but they're not crazy or things like that. So I don't know. I really like. It's this not. Stuff. It's I, not
2: exploitive, certainly. No, right.
1: I'm not. Like I said I'm not a particularly huge fan of this character, but I really like. I think it's a great bunch of. Uh, I think it's a great. The images on the back are, are great, and the images on the front, I think, uh, is really sharp. I like the hair. I like everything about it. I think it's really good. So
2: you know, she got it created by credit. Uh, Marvel open and George Pres and I just realized in hindsight,
1: Aquaman didn't. Oh.
2: It's not fair. No, It'll take years they before still, that finally yeah, happens.
1: They, yeah, they were still working that out back then. Yep. They're still like more Weisinger. We can't give him credit or whatever So, uh, <laughs> so next...
2: um, nope, nope. Just got to finish up. Next. Text is written by Mark Wade. Color yes. is black for villain. Uh, and uh, first appearance you already mentioned. So, uh, at this point, if uh, you were following. The Adventures of New Teen Titans, you could go to New, Teen, uh, New Titans number 79, which is the middle of the Titans hunt, uh, which is where they introduced the Teen Titans into the 20th century. And uh, if you wanted more on her, you could go to Pop Culture Affidavit, which they talk a lot about uh, Titans stuff and the, the blog version, or the Titan of Defense podcast. I do want to mention something at this point. Normally, in this podcast, I'm able to tell you like exactly how many appearances the characters had and how many months it's been since they appeared. Folks, uh, and, and Derek Crab will back me up on this. We have a problem. There was this fantastic website called Comic Book DB, which was great. I could tell you every—it's all indexed and cross-referenced with appearances and artists, and, and, and wonderful, wonderful, wonderful resource for podcasters. They just shut down last month, which sucks for us. So, a lot of this data that we were able to use is much harder to pull together. Certainly there are a few sites out there, like the Grand Comic Database, um, things like that are useful, but that one was certainly the best and most user-friendly. So, uh, I don't have as much data as I usually have for you. I'm going to do my best for you, though, folks. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) right. Uh, Next up is Elastigirl from the Doom Patrol, and it is drawn... By Lorraine Sizramsky, I think. Yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Um, I'm not really sure. It's S Z R A M S K I. Yep. And and Alan Smithy. And for those of you, of course, know Alan Smithy means that's a fake person. Uh, and oh, so is it really. Yes Alan Smithy is well it used to be the name that directors would put on films when they didn 't want their name on the film and then no event, yes, and then eventually so many Alan, Alan Smithy ended up directing so many films that the directors Guild shut it down and said you can 't use Alan <laughs> Smithy anymore, um, so yes, Alan Smithy uh, no longer uh, is a, is a usable name, but it was a name that you could sub in, and so obviously they 're having whoever inked this is doing a little bit of a gag they didn 't want their name uh, on it for some reason my hunch is it's inked by Ty Templeton. Uh, it has a Ty Templeton look to me uh, as an inker. Um, I had not heard of Lorraine Cisramski, and then Didn't I went you on – we do the
2: same stupid research? Because I'm going to get what? mad if you figured all this out too, because I did a bunch of research. Go ahead.
1: What? <laughs> all right. I, I know so,
2: who it is. I figured it out.
1: What do you what mean you do? know who it is? Well, go Wait, ahead. Who? You tell your bit. I'll tell my bit. All right. I'm supposed to lead this one, and then you don't even let me finish talking. Uh, Lorraine Simzansky is, a, is, a, is an artist. I mean, it, that's not a yes. – I never heard of this person, and I went and found her. She has a Twitter account where she takes credit for this particular yes. listing. She says that her nickname was Rain. Uh, yes. but, uh, they, they give her, and she says, Lorraine, they put Lorraine on the checks. So I guess that's her full name is Lorraine. So I, again, I'm suggesting this is Ty Templeton because it looks like Ty Templeton. I actually wrote to Michael Urey and asked him who, <clears throat> who was Alan Smithy. And Michael said, unfortunately, that has been lost to the mists of time to for at least for his memory. So he does not remember uh, who did this And whoever did do it, did a great job. Cause I think this is a really beautiful listing. I think it's wonderfully drawn.
2: This piece knocks everything out of the park. This is gorgeous. First of all, it's part of the Doom Patrol collection, so you get the vertical uh, bar of white – uh, that matches the cover trope, right? But it's so blended in, you almost don't even
1: notice. Right, they it's very reminiscent there. Of, the, of the Richard Case design of all the other Doom Patrolists.
2: Exactly, which I think actually goes back to Dave McKean's cover treatments, if I remember right. But either way, uh, this thing could have been like a movie poster. It looks that good. It's, it's, the, it's the 50-foot woman as she's catching the airplane kind of thing. She's glamorous. She's sexy. She's not too... Uh, too um, uh, we just used the term a minute ago. It, it's not... Uh,
1: Really exploitive it's, she's got re- she 's got way. relatively reasonable superhero yep. anatomy. But she looks beautiful. She's uh, Glamorous is the word that comes to mind when I see
2: this. And I did the exact same research you did. I found Rain's Twitter account. And, dude, I, I'm not sure who inked it. And I don't know that the, the beauty of it's coming from the inking because I, I spent a lot of time last night looking at her artwork online on Redbubble, on her coffee page, on her um, uh, Patreon page. She does some stunning, stunning work. And all of it looks very much like this. So I don't know that the inker really is the one who, who brought this beautiful. For it. I think a lot of it's her. She does some of the most gorgeous Doctor Who stuff. She does beautiful Doctor Who artwork. Uh, she does beautiful Blake 7 artwork. She does a lot of other sci-fi stuff. And uh, I just was blown away by her. So please check her. Yes, Rob said, she goes by Rain, R-A-I-N-E, and then S. Z R A M S K I. You can find again. Uh, you can find her on coffee and, and Redbubble and uh, Patreon. All these things. She's fantastic. Go out there and support her. And I, I also noticed uh, our buddy Doug Zoisha. Who used to, who runs a, a Doom Patrol blog? He featured this many years ago. This entry, and he pointed out, you know, all the people on the bottom are so like so freaked out and excited. One guy's so excited, his arms just fell off. And you look in the bottom right-hand corner. There's a guy who's on his knees, and he has no arms after his elbows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just sort of funny. Uh, it, it, maybe his arms are bent the other way, but it's kind of cute. You know, it was good that Doug noticed that. Um, so as far as the character goes, you know, they, she has the deceased, you know, a rubber stamp there showing pointing out the character's dead at this point. Because really, out of all the original Doom Patrol, who gave their lives, she's the only one who stayed dead. You know, she never came back until John Byrne rebooted the entire Doom Patrol. Everyone else found some way to crawl back from the wreckage, pun intended. And um, they talk about how she was so embarrassed by her uh, lack of control with growing large or shrinking that she she felt like a freak, which never really tracked with me because she was – no matter how tall she was, she was still a glamorously gorgeous movie star. So that never really tracked with me. However, I think the – DC Universe series has really done it right by having her turn into this, like, gelatinous blob. Like, she can't – she holds her features together as much as she can, but when she loses control, she turns into, like, an ooze. And so that made a lot more sense for me uh, to sort of talk about why she was in a freakish condition. They also talk about in the entry, I like how uh, she was a master seamstress because that was sort of to explain why they had the sexist comment of her sewing all the Doom Patrol costumes back back in the day. So this one's written by Mark Waid, um, and I, I Border for Red, obviously. First appearance, My Grace Adventure 80 in June 1963, along with all the other Doom Patrol members. And the inset pictures are great. It's got her breathing the, the, the volcanic fumes, uh, a lot like Jay Garrick in some ways. They've got her tiny with the Chief and Robot Man, and they've got her tied up in this net. Well, Negative Man and Robot Man appear to be I guess, fighting each other, probably, which they did a lot back in the day. And uh, at this point, Doom Patrol was on issue 46, so there was only 15 issues left with Grant Morrison. And uh, if you want more on Doom Patrol, you can check out Waiting for Doom podcast, of course, or the Doom Patrol TV show. And again, check out Rain's work
1: because I am telling you, I'm in love with this Doctor Who stuff all right it's a, it's a great listing. It's, it's superb. Uh, and like I said, I will – if we ever see Ty Templeton at another Comic-Con, we have to ask him if he inked this because it just – to me, it just reads like Templeton did the inking. But anyway, great listing. We should ask her on Twitter. Uh, I guess we could. Uh, I, I wrote a message about her last night. Okay. Uh, next up is Nort. Uh, and the text is by Kevin Dooley uh, is In the same style as Nort uh, he is, He's given a hero Sort of classification Just hilarious uh, yeah, This is just one giant joke um, It's a conversation uh, The whole listing is between who's who and Nort So well, on the one hand I give them credit for stretching the format Which I like uh, At the same time, I've already said this I felt like Nort was a one joke concept That just got Played over and over and over and over, and it really was one of the things that led me to kind of eventually bail on the Justice League book. I just was like, I this just okay, enough. Uh, So I just don't find any of this very funny. I
2: um, felt like you in a lot of ways in the old days that Nort didn't do a lot for me and that it went on too long. Uh, In my reread of the Justice League so far – now bear in mind we're only up to like issue 30 at this point. The Nort stuff has been hilarious actually. It's been really, really well executed. So I'm wondering if it just gets a little too much later or whether back then I just was too much of a jaded teenager. I don't know. But uh, I will agree with you that this entry, though, is a little too much. Um, yeah, It's cute at first. There are a couple funny bits. Like, There's actually a joke in here about the apostrophe because Nort sometimes is spelled with an apostrophe. Sometimes it's not. It's absolutely inconsistent. It's not like there's a point in history where it changed. It just goes back and forth all the time. So they actually make a joke about whether his name is spelled with an apostrophe, which is kind of clever. They do talk about him smoking, which is a bit of a nod because the character did used to smoke. In fact, the the, the original Who's Who entry was written uh, drawn by Stephen um, uh, DeStef- uh, what? Stephen De Thank you. And he's smoking in that one, you know. And so they're sort of commenting on how he doesn't do that anymore. Um, and this is not my favorite interpretation of Nort as far as visually. Here he basically just looks like a dog with a big bushy mustache. My version of Nort is, is is different than this. I can't tell you which one because I, I, I can't put my finger on it right now. But this is this is not it. And um, there is something important. Oh, well, by the way, affiliation is pretty funny. Group affiliation, Green Lantern Corps and Just League International. Parentheses, they'll both deny it. So I do think it's interesting that they – Openly acknowledge him as part of Just Look International, but Big Barta didn't get, didn't get uh, noted as that, which still gets in my crop. Anyway, the, the one thing about this that I sort of love is that here is Nort, and he is part of the DC Universe proper. And this, what I'm about to say, goes to why I love this time period in DC Comics, because it was so diverse and so different, because in the same universe, you had Nort, which is – Bonkers ludicrous. You had Lobo, who was ultra violent, and you know, Simon Bisley ripping out guts. And you had Sandman. All of these in the same universe. It just demonstrated that DC was willing to be completely diverse, and they didn't care. They're like, you know what? All these things exist. And you know what? If you have a hard time putting that together in your head, who cares? They're comics. Have fun with them. And I love that about .DC. comics at this point, because nowadays it, there, it's very homogenized, you know uh, any different sort of corners of the DC. universe have to be a different dimension or a different universe or something. So I liked that you could have all these different things.:
1: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that, And like I said, I like that the, the, this listing is different than all the other ones, but it just you know, like I said, I just read, I go, eh, it's just not that funny, but I mean yeah. you know, okay, hey, points for trying, no 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 doubt.
2: Yep. Now, did you mention the drama just Joseph Staten and Mark Nelson? I'm not sure I you did. I did not. I
1: did not. Okay. Uh, first, so,
2: yeah. First appearance, Justice League International, number 10, February 1988. The border is red. And, yes, you said hero, sort of, which is adorable. And uh, at this point, Justice League America was on issue number 54 in the beginning of the breakdown storyline. And Green Lantern was on number 16. And they had just recently finished a story with Guy Gardner and Nort. So, and if you want yeah. more on Nort, probably check out the, sorry, JLI podcast oh, uh, or Lanterncast. All right.
1: Yeah, go to LanternCast. Uh, next up is Hawk Woman. Uh, and this is the Hawk World version of Hawk uh, Woman. Uh, the historical first appearance is, of course, Flash Comics number 24, but then the modern one is Hawk, Hawk World, book one, number one. Uh, written by Mark Wade, drawn by Graham Nolan. Uh, like I said, I'm not a fan of this era of Hawkman. This this drawing, nevertheless, is great. It's her soaring into the sky. She's got the gun. She's got those big pie-plate wings flying, flying in front of a moon. And there's a cityscape. It's a it's a really nice drawing. I, I again, I, I'm not a fan of this era of these characters, but this listing is terrific. It reminds me almost like a 1940s pinup.
2: I mean, the pose, look at that smile. Yep, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know it. It's kind of very pinup style. I, I love the she's flying in front of the big moon. Um, yeah, I and I've said it before. This is my f- absolute favorite version of Hawkwoman. This is the version of Hawkwoman, uh that most subsequent Hawkwoman owe credit to this version because prior to this, while Shaira, uh was a great hero, she wasn't the aggressive, hostile version of Hawkwoman we've all come to know and love. It all starts here with this version where she's angry as hell. She's in Hawkman's face all the time. She curses all the time, like language like seven hells is the, the new, new curse word they came up with for the Hawkworld series. She's fantastic. And every incarnation subsequent then, since then has borrowed, like especially just like unli- you know, unlimited, the cartoon. She's, even though she physically looks like the original Hawk girl, they're totally based on this version. Um, uh, and, and she actually sort of reappeared in Hawkman apparently this month, where uh, Hawkman, a version of Shiera shows up. And she's sort of an amalgam of the original Hawkwoman and this version, because so, she's saying things like seven hells and stuff like that. Now, hmm. it, as you read the entry, oh, really disturbing. Horrible, horrible past. Her mother was a 13-year-old girl who was seduced by an old man, then she's orphaned, and then she's raised by someone else and tied into all this. Ugh, really, really disturbing. I just like to think of her as a badass cop who hangs out with, with Carter um, or Katar at that point. And, and there, at this point also, the eventual romance between Katar and Shara was not a guaranteed thing. I mean if, you even see in the inset, she's got a different boyfriend. At this right. There's
1: a guy, it's a guy uh, running his hand under, under her chin. I'm like, wait a minute. What? Yeah, well, she wasn't with Katar at first. Right. It took a right. long time for them
2: to get together, which is you know you kind of like watching them fall in love. So uh, really love it. And and the writing here is by Mark Wade. They could have got John Ostrander, which would have made more sense, but Mark wrote it. And the border is red. And you mentioned the first appearances already. Now, if you wanted to follow the character, you could. She would have been appearing in Hawk World number 15 at this point, the ongoing series, uh, which, interestingly enough, I didn't know this, but it's credited as being the longest-running Hawkman series because Hawk World led directly into Hawkman, so they, I guess they kind of view that as one series, which would have gone 60-plus issues. And all the other series didn't make it that long. So,
1: Yeah, that's about right. Okay.
2: Even though though people bash on the Hawkworld era of Hawkman, it lasted longer than anything else. So uh, if you want more on Hawkman, you can check out the Bean Carter Hall blog by our buddy Luke Giaconetti. There's also another blog called the Hawkworld blog, which is uh, very good and uh, very interesting and and current. And or, again, check out the Hawkman companion
1: written by our buddy Doug Zoesha. Right, uh next up is High Father from the New Gods, created by Jack Kirby, of course, uh, it kind of shows you like that you know the times they they change of course, the of uh, High Father was always a big guy. As drawn by Jack Kirby, but here he is like super ripped. As drawn by Parrish Collins and Will Blyberg, he is like Arnold Schwarzenegger, just kind of an old dude. And we see him standing there, leading some of the uh, the children of a uh, New Genesis there. And he's got his got his sort of a staff. And I think there's a there's this beam. I guess that's supposed to be is that light ray? Perhaps. Yeah, Maybe I was assume it's light ray
2: flying by. Yeah, yeah uh,
1: and he's just standing there, looking very promising. It's almost like a, like a like a political poster kind of. He's just the the running of the of New Vote Genesis. My father. There. Vote for High Father, and then on the inside we see him with the boom tube, and they see him on the other side there, the the two sides of uh, Apocalypse, where we've got High Father on the left, the Dark Side on the right, and uh, like I said, this is, uh, you know, this is one of these characters that is just yeah, all right, I mean, New Gods was was running at this point. I think there was the new series. Uh, Actually, the was... final issue was on the shelf this month. Oh, all
2: right, well there you we got go. New Gods number twenty-eight, final issue.
1: Okay. Uh, he first appeared in New Gods number one, of course, the original series from Jack Kirby. And I know I get obsessed with the height and weight. He's height six four, weight two twenty seven. No, this guy, this guy is six four and a mountain of muscle. He's not two hundred and twenty seven <laughs> pounds. I'm sorry.
2: So you think that's sort of like a charlton heston Moses thing going on in the front maybe? yes,
1: absolutely I think okay. that that's exactly kind of what, what i'm feeling. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah
2: i I do like that he's surrounded by children. I think that's kind of appropriate, you know, as sort of the shepherd of the sure. of the new new genocide. i I think that was well executed um you, you did mention Paris Collins. Yeah, you did, and Will Weiberg. That's yeah, right. yep. Yeah. Uh, I do like the inset pictures, though. You're, you mentioned it, but just to get deeper, um, the, 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 the two right pictures, it's, you, they're, they're conjoined even with the blue bar in the middle. But on the left hand is, is Highfather, but he's there with Orion, who's got like a sword. He's an aggressive kid. And on the right, you've got uh, Darkseid with Granny Goodness and Mr. Miracle as, as Scott Free as an infant. So I just really like that. It's the child swapping. It's, it's really, really cleverly done.
1: Um and then it, uh, it written, does mention that he is a pacifist who no longer engages in direct combat, but he is nevertheless prudent enough to realize that sometimes force is the only effective weapon against dark side. Which is why he's hitting the gym for six hours a day. That's right.
2: <laughs> written by Mark Wade, um and there's not a ton of text here, and that, that came up in um, Frank's comments about how Mark Wade didn't always write a lot of text about the New Gods, so we'll talk about that a little bit later, so it's sort of a reoccurring theme there. And Border for Red, obviously, as hero, and um, let see, I mentioned New Gods on issue number 28, and for more, you can check out the Kirby cast, and yes, he does get a created by credit.
1: There we go. Uh, more Kirby characters are next. Uh, Intergang, which first appeared in everyone's favorite series, The Forever People, Number one from March of 1971. Here it is written by uh, Roger Stern, again drawn by Paris Collins and inked by Terry Austin. We've got a lot to do uh, this, uh, this issue. This was one of these things that was brought in, you know, in the Forever People but then quickly drafted into the Superman universe. And they basically have just sort of stayed Superman villains in sort of one context or the next. And they even talk about that here where they interact with Toy Man and, like, Lu- Lu- Luther Corps. And so, like, so they're basically Superman villains at this point.
2: So it's interesting. I, I was looking them up today, and I came across an alternative first appearance. Um, they actually say he first they they first appeared in Jimmy Olsen number one thirty three, which would have been a, a Kirby issue. Um, so I don't I don't know which is accurate, um, but either way, yeah, very much a, the Superman mob bad guys. And this entry is the the art is bonkers. You've got Markheim, it's almost like a little JLI pose from, you know, looking from up above, but you got Markheim who's standing there with his, his gun and he looks angry and he's got a cigar. And then next to him is, I guess, his girlfriend who's all sexed up in like a super tight skirt and and leggings and everything. It's pretty hot, but, and then there's a guy on the ground? I don't know what that, some guy groveling, I guess. But the, then the three – like one agent is gassing some female scientist who's also scantily clad in the face it looks like. and there's So it took me a while to figure out what is going on in this image. And it turns out there are – they talk about there are three different type of troopers in Gang. There's gassers, which is the guy gassing the girl. There's shock troopers, which is the guy climbing the rope. And then there's wall crawlers, the guy in the wall. OK. So that at least explained that part of it. But the, it's just sort of bizarre. And I was shocked to look at how far Inner Gang is spread. Like you said, it's a spider, I'm a Superman thing. But dude, they have appeared on the Lois and Clark show. They've appeared on the Justice League cartoons, the Superman animated series, the Young Justice cartoons. They've been in the Arrowverse. They're in video games. I mean, there are and there's, there's more. I'm not even mentioning. They have appeared in a ton of places. So they've actually been a really spread wide and far kind of thing. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, they got it for for kind of weird, you know, Z-level villains, uh, DC's got a lot of use out of them. I hope jacks Estate's getting a lot of money
2: for it. So. Um, I hope so. The Border's Black for villains. Uh, you, you mentioned the first appearance already. Now, Adventures of Superman, I just picked one of the other Superman books that was on the shelves at this point, was on issue 482 at this point, to give you some perspective there. And Intergang had
1: been seen fairly recently. And for more on them, you should check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast. All right, next up is uh, Clarion the Witch Boy, a uh, character from The Demon. Yet another Jack Kirby list. I think these are, what, three Jack Kirby creations all in a row? Uh, Possibly. Pretty, pretty, yeah, it is. Pretty pretty amazing. Um, he's there with his little cat, uh, Teekel, who actually gets a credit. This is, uh, it says Witch Boy and Teekel. And it's Clarion at, at some sort of carnival, and we see that he has strung up the guy with the uh, the milk running the uh, milk jug uh you know uh, uh, what's the uh, the stand or whatever yeah, we throw the game balls game. at them yeah. yeah whatever and he's holding the guy up and we see he's trussed up and uh tickle is tearing off uh get another head from one of the uh the, the stuffed uh, prizes and so they are, they're tearing off the head of every
2: stuffed of animal every
1: right like. the, right yeah <laughs> And the whole gist of Claring the Witch Boy is that he's an evil little demon boy, and he looks like Damien from the Omen films. And he's appear- – you mentioned intergame He's appeared in some of the cartoons as well. I think he's in uh, JLU, I believe.
2: I know he—I think he- just about all of them pretty yeah. much. I mean he's, he's also appeared wide and far.
1: Right. And then the inset on the back, uh, we see him attacking a uh, demon, uh, and then there's, there's this giant eye there. And it's drawn by uh, Val Semex, uh, who, of course, is doing all the demon-related listings for Who's Who?
2: Okay, I, I got to talk about this in two different ways. First, we'll talk strictly art. The front image is absolutely adorable. It is beautifully executed. It's funny. It, the art it, it looks great. The cat looks like oh, cute kitty being incredibly violent, you know, and he's got the whole, uh, you know, Victorian schoolboy look, and yet, you know, he's Beating the crap out of this guy. So it's very funny. It's very cute. You know, the R is backwards on clarion. It looks like it's handwritten with, you know, paint or something. It's adorable. I freaking hate this character so much. Uh, every time Clarion shows up in a comic, I just want to tear it up. It just it annoys the crap out of me. I've only ever read one or two comics where I didn't hate this character. Uh, I do need to read the Demon comic. Maybe I'll feel differently. But it just – every time he shows up, I just can't stand it. So um, you mentioned the created by credit. Now, it's interesting. He's got a purple border for Supernatural. Could have easily been villain.
1: Yeah. Um, He's a villain. I know. The super villain, supernatural, they just went all, you know, heroes were supernatural, villains were supernatural, but yeah, he's a villain. He's called Clarion the Witch Boy, for Pete's sake.
2: First appearance is the demon, the first series, number seven, way back in March 1973, and uh, it, as you said, appeared in tons and tons of different cartoons. And this entry is written by Mark Wade, and and I do think Val Simeeks, uh, again, I don't know how to say, it. I would say Val Semekis, which I know is not right, but um, he's un, he's underappreciated. Uh, he's got a really cool style and uh, really did some neat stuff. Now, I, I didn't like his later stuff when he was doing Lobo, but at this point, uh, I think he really has some stunning artwork.
1: I like the way he draws in the inset—the little driver's license photo. Clarine's teeth, and it's just this perfect triangle. There's yeah, no separation yeah. of a line. No, it's just very, uh, you know, very abstract. So I like that a lot. Yeah, it's well, cute,
2: and it works perfectly because the, the boy is supposed to look sweet and innocent, and yet right. he's, you know, ugh.
1: right. Uh, next up is Lois Lane. Everybody's heard of Lois Lane. Uh, drawn by John Bogdanov and Dennis Jenke. And we see her in her sort of spy uh, pose, uh, her spy role. We see her with a well, camera. Well, investigative reporter. Investigative reporter. I mean she looks a little more spyish because she's kind of got like an adventure boots. But we see her with a camera and she's spying on this uh, secret evil organization and then this big goon about to grab her. Uh, historically, of course, Action Comics, number one, and then it lists the current version, which is Man of Steel, number one on the insets. We see her investi- We see her asking a question of Lex Luthor. We see her with the Daily Planet staff. And then, and then third, we see her uh, canoodling with Clark. Uh, so it's a- and drawn by uh, Roger Stern.
2: Wr- written by Roger Stern, you mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, drawn by-
1: yeah, written by Roger Stern. So, interesting.
2: Uh, we've talked a lot about the logos. You know, she doesn't get a logo. She just gets a typeface, But it's actually like a newsprint type face. It's a typewriter type face. Yeah. Yeah, So I like that. Um, the, the image itself. So I, you didn't talk about your feelings. I'll talk about mine. Then you can go from there. I love the setting. I love the idea as her as the investigator, as investigative journalist out on this balcony filming this scorpion society or whatever. Right. It tells a whole story. The image tells the story really effectively. And I've said a lot of different things over the years about uh, Bogdadov. I didn't have an appreciation for him in the old days. I've gained a much greater appreciation for him in more recent years. This image is like I'm totally of two minds. Like I love the setup, I love it tells a story, I love the layout, but there's just something about Lois herself that doesn't work for me. I think it's the legs. Um, like maybe they're astronomically too long. I don't. I don't know. You you might be able to help me on that. But some some reason it just doesn't work for me. I do think she's got a little bit too much plunging cleavage going on too for Lois Lane, but.
1: Um, yeah I think the anatomy's a little wonky, and i i to be honest, I wish that the main image had been her at the daily planet I, oh, I understand really? this is yeah I understand this is her as the investigative reporter, but to me, this image looks more like lois Lane's spy uh, again, I know she's got a camera, but it just to me it's when I think of Lois Lane, I think of her at the Daily planet and we see that on the inset, but i I wish that had been the main image not this not not the one that we get.
2: I don't feel strongly as you on that one, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. A couple other things, um, like known relatives. Perhaps, maybe, fiance could have been listed there. Just saying. Her and Clark are engaged at this point. Hmm. So could have have been there. Now – A couple of things about Lois. You know, one of the things I love about this character is I I love her as the hard-hitting journalist. You know, she's never dissuaded from a story. I love that aspect of her. I much prefer that to the, you know, ooh, trying to figure out Superman's identity kind of stuff. So that's the version of Lois I like, which is for the most part the post-crisis version. And I I just want to take a split second to talk about the marriage of Lois and Clark, because this is leading up to it. They just got engaged. They do get married eventually. And, you know, there was a lot of talk around 2011 when they did the New 52 about all these people wanted. To break up the marriage of, of Superman and, and Lois, they thought, you know, oh, superheroes shouldn't be married, all that stuff. And they broke up Spider Man about the same time. And I think what everyone found out is, even though they went fifty years not together, that Superman and Lois work better as a married couple. Because you know, within a few years of the New Fifty Two, they they backpedaled the whole thing. In fact, they brought the post crisis Superman and Lois into. The, the Rebirth Universe, and that became the new version of Superman and, and Lois together as a married couple because they're one of the few couples that really do work better as married. She works better in that support role rather than the antagonist always trying to uncover a secret. So I'm glad that they finally stuck with it, and they're hopefully not going to you know, break that formula again. So it makes me very happy.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's solid. I, it, it's solid. I liked that Lois was again more of a kind of a not an equal, obviously to Superman, but just more of her own character here. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that she has so much history—I mean, she fit three, fills three columns when there's some other characters later on that barely get one and a half columns. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and, and by the way, I did mention the the little inset uh, drawn by Bogdanov uh, is very good. Like you, I didn't appreciate him all that much. Uh, when he was kind of doing comics, and I look back at it now, I'm like, ah, this stuff's really solid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I,
2: um, yeah. So the uh, border is blue for supporting cast, uh, which makes sense. And she could have been hero too, I would say. She's th- she's that important to the DC universe. But supporting cast is probably right. You do get a creator by credit, and uh, the you mentioned Roger Stern did the writing on that and first appearance. Um, oh, you already mentioned. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, where Superman was at this point, they were on issue Superman 59. So Lois and Clark had engaged for nine months at this point, which is you know again, well my favorite sort of era for that. And for more from Crisis to Crisis, of course, is a great podcast for that. You could watch any number of movies movies. movies or TV shows or cartoons or (laughs) we're even watching Smallville right now, my daughter and I. And Erica Durance as Lois Lane and we're only, you know, a few episodes into the season. She's fantastic as Lois Lane. Someone else was telling me that she's the best Lois Lane they've ever done. And I kind of see it from her just feistiness. She is like, she does not care and she'll do anything to get the story. And I totally buy her as this hard nosed, you know,
1: going to get what she wants kind of character. So I'm digging it. She's the ultimate supporting cast. Uh, everyone's mm-hmm. heard of her. There isn't anyone who has not heard of Lois Lane. You know, you've never read a Superman comic in your life. You've heard of Lois Lane.
2: Well, the the TV series that came out shortly after this was Lois and Clark. There I mean, she was the headliner in the name, really.
1: There you go. All right, next up is the best listing in the book. I will not hear any arguments about this. Uh, this, is, this <laughs> you, is, you will
2: hear arguments on that, but you, no. you may this not brook is, them, though. The,
1: I, will, I will completely ignore them. This is Man Bat by Michael Golden. And, of course, if it's by Michael Golden, it means it's excellent. Where uh, Michael Golden is t- – and it's colored by Michael Golden, too, by the way, which is a nice oh, a little touch. Okay. Uh, Michael Golden turns the camera uh, almost 180 degrees to where the – buildings uh in this case all these uh gotham churches and spires are pointing downwards and man bat is as we can figure out actually actually swinging flying down towards the ground it has got an amazing movement colored in green uh we get the moon in the background there's this little flutter of bats swinging around it is a magnificent Piece. I mean, again, what I talked about on the insect trades uh, listing. This is such a good listing that they just slapped this on the cover of the man bat trade paperback. <laughs> I mean, what does that tell you?
2: Uh, there's also a bit of a fisheye lens kind of thing going on with the yes. buildings too which yep. really adds yep. a nice effect it's, I'm, you know I may backpedal until I say it is the best entry I don't know it's definitely on my list it's just unbelievable and I'm glad to know he did the coloring because coloring is actually on my notes here just saying it's not just the angle and the art it's also the coloring I mean, it's just stunning and I am sorry Chris Franklin I can't stand Man Pat and even I, I love this image this looks great
1: uh, yeah, it's fantastic. He first appeared in Detective Comics number 400. Uh, the insets uh, are also uh, colored somewhat monochromatically. On the left, we see there's him researching, uh, working on his formula, and it's in all yellows. And then we see a shot of him as Man-Bat hanging upside down, and it's all in magenta. And then there's a shot of him uh, kind of dueling with Batman with just a blood-red background. It's it's just fantastic. Yeah, I, I see what you say about that. the Man-Bat, you know, like how far are we taking the man bat, the Batman concept. You know, we got all these different bad characters. Now we have a Man Bat, but I've always liked this character. And I have to admit, part of it has got to be that he was portrayed so vividly on the Power Record. Mm-hmm. Robin meets Man Bat. Uh, it re- that record scared the crap out of me as a kid. It's so well done. And like I said, I think I just love it. And and Man Bat. You know, it's funny. Man Bat actually got his own series in the seventies. It only ran for two issues. But he did get his own series. So, I mean, DC had high hopes for this character. And he also was one of the coolest Batman uh, of the animated series action figures ever made because you pressed a little button on his back and his wings fluttered. It's awesome. Mm,
2: okay. Now, it, it, his pedigree here – I mean you got – did Michael Golden draw some of the original
1: stories as well? I don't – he must have. I Maybe he did – like he appeared in a special or something. I mean okay. he surely didn't draw the originals because it was Neil Adams who drew the original well, stories.
2: That's where I was going. It's the pedigree – I think I think the pedigree of the character is what has made him so beloved is Neil Adams, Michael Golden. I mean, woof. OK. Frank yeah. Robbins. Frank Robbins yeah. did some of them. They were, they so were re- great. really great stuff. You got some great hitters there. But when you boil it down, he's just a ripoff of Marvel's The Lizard. I mean he really <laughs> is. And, and it's just a, a play on Batman's name, and so it just irritates the crap out of me. So, but I appreciate people's love for him. So now, Mark Wade apparently didn't have much to say about him. No, he's
1: he's barely wanting to have columns of info. But I will say it is nice and succinct.
2: I, I forgot to mention earlier on the Inner Gang entry. It drove me crazy. Reading it made me insane because it was just simply this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And I hate those kinds of who's who entries. That's kind of like what Ohatma would do quite often. Uh, this one, well, it's, I made fun of it for being so succinct. It does its job effectively, it gives you the origin and it gives you the spirit of the character and moves on. And which is, which is nice. I, that's what who's who should do. So I do like that aspect of it. You know, if this was the classic who's who, they just would have left more room for the art then, you know, kind of thing. Um, So interestingly enough, when I was doing – and I can't – again, my website research is a little challenged here, but it really looks like Man-Bat didn't have a ton of appearances at this point. He had a bunch of the 70s. But then in the 80s and the 90s, there weren't a lot of appearances, like 10 appearances in the 80s maybe, uh, roughly uh, around 15 appearances in the 90s. Most of those after the Batman animated series kind of helped popularize the character. So, it may be part of the reason I'm not a big Man-Bat fan is because that was my era of Batman when he wasn't really around that much. That might be affecting it. So, anyway, the border is purple for supernatural, uh, and
1: uh, art, art text I text my He's Mark not White. supernatural, though. That's what's weird. He's not. Oh, you're right. He's not yeah, supernatural. He's science. He's, he's, he's science. He did Kirk Langstrom experimented, experimented with some chemicals, and he became a bat creature. He's not supernatural. I mean, I guess maybe he's – I don't know. I don't know where they're kind of getting that from. I didn't even think
2: about that. That's a good point. Well, he is often tied in with some of the supernatural stuff. Like um, wasn't he in – maybe – was he in the the Blue Devil Summer Fun special? Wasn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah, and all those people were magical. But he doesn't. Hmm. I I didn't think about that. Yeah. Uh, so um, if you want more on this uh, character, uh, Batman Animated Series is a good place to go. Uh, there's also the Power Records Podcast, which covered a great Man Bad Story. Then it's The guys hosted it, though. They're total flags. Um, and on the shelves at this point was Batman number 468, which was a um, pretty much just a kind of a sequel to the Robin miniseries because he's fighting King Snake again. It's done by Tom Lyle, so it seems like right in, right in that wheelhouse. But Anyway, we should probably get to the next character. I, well,
1: I will say my one last thing is I think part of the reason he survives is because he is just a f- – it's kind of like that line about the, uh, the Velvet Underground where they said that hardly anybody bought the Velvet Underground records but everyone that did perform their own band. Uh, so that's why they're influential. It's like – I mean the Man-Bat is the main protagonist on the first ever episode of Batman the Animated Series. Yeah. I mean, which is pretty remarkable. I mean of all the characters to do, you do Man Bat, and I think that's just because, you know, Paul Dini, Bruce Timm liked him. And so that's why he's as you know, kind of as, as popular as he is, is because people that create comics really like him. So I, mean, I, I still go back to it's the artists that made people it, love the characters. Well that's but that too. I mean I said Michael Gold Michael Golden didn't do a lot of stuff for D C, especially Husso listings, and look what he chooses to do. Man mm-hmm. Bat. But look what he did. I mean he crushes it though. I mean this is yeah. – <laughs> his, his listing is so good. So I mean that's – it's. I, I think you probably could have handed it to somebody else and it might have been like, eh, all right. But you look at this. You're like, but this Man Bat guy is cool because look at this drawing. This is fantastic. <laughs> so anyway, if, if Man Bat is not the best listing in the book, and it is, uh, the second best listing is followed – follows this, which is Mira. By Chris Sprouse and Carl Story. And the Mira listing to me is everything the Aquaman listing is not. Mira, yes, Mira is floating here, but I love this to me has much more sense of depth and movement. She's got her hand out towards the camera, foreshortened, very tough to do. I've mentioned that before. Very, very hard to draw effectively. There's a school of fish swimming in the front and then in the back. And this, I don't know who colored. Oh, it's just Tom McGraw. Beautifully colored. By Tom McGraw with these stripes of blue and orange—excuse uh, me, blue and green—and kind of a lighter blue in the background. And her hair is floating up; her red hair is floating up off the, off the, almost off the page. It's a marvelous uh, listing. The only problem is there is a mistake, in that it says her first appearance is Aquaman number one. 1963, that is not true. She did not first appear in Aquaman number one. She does not appear <laughs> in that comic. She appears later on in the series, not Aquaman number one. Is she 18?
2: Or is that 18 when they got married? I That's get when
1: they got married. I think she's okay. in, I think it's number 11, I believe is her.
2: That name. sounds about right, yeah. So,
1: yeah. Um, I'm not there with you on this piece.
2: Um, sure, I mean, Lord. I love Mara. I love a gorgeous redhead. Uh, I, uh, I dig the watercolors in the background, the way uh, they did the color to represent the ocean. That was really clever but i feel like there's not a lot of art in the page i mean it's her and it's a couple of clownfish or whatever those kind of fish are called um i think her proportions look kind of weird um the, like her legs and then her her, her stomach kind of it, it, it's not my favorite now the four shortened fingers look great you know and i love chris Prouse normally and i love the hair floating but it, and i love her smile but in general this this image doesn't do a lot for me so unfortunately oh my
1: goodness wow yeah.
2: I know, and you know I love Mara, so there's, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, It's interesting as you read the entry though about now. I do love the inset picture, the inset picture, the class picture where she's like kind of looking over her shoulder, looks beautiful. Beautiful. I love where she's blasting black mana, and and they're sitting there with a baby, and then she's trying to claw Aquaman's eyes. I mean, all that looks great, but. it's interesting as you read this, really, because I was thinking about this, and I'm like reading the entry about how she can create hard-water objects. And then I'm thinking about Mera in the movie where she's just like insanely powerful. And I'm like, oh, her powers have changed! And then I really sat there and thought about it and thought about it. And really, her powers haven't changed. They've just gotten a lot more clever about how to use the powers in the in the, in the stories. So I, 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 as much as I feel like it, they did change, it's really just an evolution. So I, you know, credit to them how they really evolved the character. Now, unfortunately, this is during a ter- period of time where Mera was bonkers crazy. Like certifiably insane. And they claim that it's something in our world because, you know, she's from another dimension that is driving her insane. And then her son dies and she is completely off her rocker. She tried to kill Aquaman in the Kurt Swan miniseries. um, And and so they, they, made, they drove her insane to the point where she wasn't a likable character. And she was actually gone from Aquaman stories for about six years. And so when Peter David eventually brings her back as a love interest, it, it was very hard for me to sort of warm back up to her because pretty much the entire time since I became a big Aquaman reader on a regular basis because I started around 89, as a regular reader, Mera was bad news. So when she came back, I didn't want her to come back. It took a long time for me to warm back up to the character because of the damage they had done to her. And uh, nowadays they just kind of gloss over and you completely forgot it. Forget about that whole era. Hmm.
1: Uh, okay. Well, I know. <laughs> uh, now, she's got supporting cast. Blue supporting cast. Do you agree with that? No, she's hero. I mean, yeah, I, yeah at this point she's a, she's a superhero. Come on.
2: Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Uh, written by Mark Wade, and um, as you said, the first appearance should get a correction. Again, we're about yeah. two to three months out from the Aquaman series, but she won't be in it. I think she shows up in a flashback. She doesn't really come back till Peter David takes over the book. So, right. if you want more Amara, of course you could check out the Aquaman Shrine stuff, the Aquaman movie, or the Aquaman Firestorm podcast.
1: Two very minor things, though, before we wrap up. First of all, I don't like the kind of boring typeset logo. Mira did have her yeah. own logo. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, she got a backup strip uh, written by oh, Paul yeah. Kupperberg, and she got a logo there, so they could have used that. And then the other thing, her height and weight. Her height and weight are actually proportioned to a normal human woman. She's 5'9", 160. For a superhero woman, that's pretty heavy. That's, that's not heavy according to normal – you know proportions and I like that I like the way Chris Pressler's or she draws her with actually childbearing hips. Uh she's not this bone thin woman. I I don't know. I I love this. I think this is a total winner this one. So, Okay. Yeah. All right. So next up is the Metal Men, drawn by Dan Jurgens and Brett Breeding. And uh, it's uh, all of our characters running towards the camera, and everybody's looking super happy uh, with uh, Dr. Magnus got his arm around Tina, which is completely inappropriate for what we know about that. Uh, and then on the, uh, on the back, we see the class photo of them all, and then them fighting uh, Chemo. And this is, a, this is a lot of history here. I mean, if they fill the page with all of uh, their exploits, what? Where were they appearing at this moment that they got another listing? I mean, were they were they running somewhere?
2: No. Uh, well, they probably had some appearances in different places.
1: But I know they were in one issue of Action Comics by with Superman by John Byrne. I know they were
2: there. That sounds about right. And, and I think they made some other appearances. But what this is really is a run up to Dan Jurgens wanting to do a ongoing or a miniseries for Metal Men, which he got to do two years after this. So that's really what's going on here. It's his passion project. He really wanted to do a Metal Men series. He does this, and he's trying to get that underway. And um, so what, what do you think of the art on the front?
1: I think it's fine. I don't get the the, the the place where they're in. Like, they're on, like, the moon or something? Like, they're in outer sure space. It sure looks like it,
2: doesn't it? Yeah.
1: I, I, don't, I don't understand that part of it at all. It's a little busy. Like, the sky background is maybe a little too heavy. But, I mean, I, you know, I, it's a nice pose. It's it's very, you know, them running towards the camera. It's actually reminiscent of what you would have seen in the older Who's Who series because it's just kind of much more of a postery type image.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, Dan Juergens is a great artist and he's perfectly like it, is, it just seems perfectly serviceable is this, you know, yeah, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with this. The characters are properly represented. You know, Mercury, although Mercury should have been showing some liquidishness, I would say. But other than that, you know, it's it, you know, you've got, as you said, the inappropriateness with Dr. Magnus and, and Tina and everything. And the logo is the Metal Man logo. But um, it just doesn't feel great. The inset picture is actually a little bit more fun, where, like, Tin is accidentally overshadowing everyone, where he's, like, in the front of the picture and he's got his giant, you know, manga-style eyes and everything, and, and uh, Mercury looks mad, because Mercury was prick, really. And, you know, in fact, they even mention here on uh, Mercury's attitude and stuff, but then they say he, deep down, he cares and how he's loyal to the members. And I used that, Rob, when you and I did a, an episode where we, we drafted our own Justice League Detroits, and I put Mercury on my team, and you were like, what? You broke the metal on apart. And I always felt like he would have worked well Outside of the metalmen as and like as if the metalmen were missing, and he was joining the justice League to help him find the metalmen. I just I, I, it all sinks up here anyway. Dan Jurgen goes on to do this metalman mini miniseries, which i'm sorry it was not good. Um, they changed the metalman's origins considerably, where we found out that the metalmen were not robots with respondent they were actually based on human living human beings um, like each one of the metalmen was like a human being's personality implanted on the robot and I, I want to say that people are still alive and being held in stasis or something. It was really disturbing and Will Magnus becomes a metal man like a green one named like Viridium or something like that. It, it was not good and everybody tried to forget it fairly quickly. Um, for, for my money because I do love The Metal Men quite a bit uh, I, my preference would be the 2007 miniseries went 8 issues and it was done by Duncan I can't say his name Rouleau. Uh he's a fantastic artist does some really crazy exaggerated styles 8 issue series it was great or if you want to have some fun in 2009 there was a series of backup stories in the Doom Patrol comic done by ah, Giffen, DeMatteis and McGuire yes the team from the JLI did a series of Metal Men stories which were hilarious Yes. Those were super fun. So that would be my preference, though. Anyway, so at this point, as we said, they had some appearances two years away from their miniseries. Uh, written here by Kevin Dooley. Uh, Border is Red for Hero Team. And uh, their first appearance Showcase number 37 all the way back in March, April 1962. And they are super fun. Now, by the way, if you get a chance to read some old Metal Men stories from the 60s, my recommendation is get either a digital reprinting like, um, you know, on Comixology or something like that or DC um, Universe. Don't buy the showcase, which I made the mistake of doing. I bought the Showcase Presents the Big Thick Phone Books, you know, in black and white. Not seeing the Metalman's colors, you oh. really <laughs> lose a lot. <laughs> the colors are pretty important there. And uh, if you want more on them, you could uh, you could probably check out the Batman: Brave and the Bold cartoon. They made some
1: appearances on there. They would have made a great, a great animated series by themselves. Very oh, distinctive they, characters. You know? They still could. They still yeah. could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, your buddy Tom Zoller had a pitch
2: for them at one point. So yeah, yeah.
1: they would have been cool. Uh, next up is Mister Freeze, uh, and on the the main image is by someone named David uh, A. Williams, who I'm not terribly familiar with inked by Dick Giordano, and it's got uh, the, the current iteration of Mr. Freeze's costume, which is one of my least favorites, where he kind of almost looks like a, a Transformer or something. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's got him, and we see this – like an astronaut. Uh, yeah, and he has frozen three members of the Gotham citizenry, in kidding, including Kid from Kid and Play. And, uh, <laughs> coming in is we see Batman is about to jump on him because we see the bat shadow coming in. It's – again, this is my least favorite of the Mr. Freeze costumes, but I do love this entry because, again, it's got great movement. You are caught in the middle of the scene of just after Mr. Freeze has, has uh, done some villainy. Batman's about to come in and bust his head, and I like Mr. Freeze's confident pose. He's standing there with his arms out like, come on. Come at me, Batman. Come, come at re- me, bro. Yeah. Come at me, bro. I really like that. So I think it's – again, I think it's – one of the the least impressive of the Mister Freeze looks, but the the image itself is terrific.
2: Well, this is sort of like the Rainbow Raider entry last time, where you said take the goofiest costume and yeah. give it a great shine, you know, or make, and take, turning a silk purse out of a sow's ear, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, the, the costume
1: was it was designed for the superpowers, right? Wasn't it? The I toy- think so. Yeah, I think it's the yeah, it was given to give it a little more uh, toyetic quality. Yeah. And so I, I think it's a fun way to
2: interpret the superpowers toy, and uh, it, it's a, it's actually a very exciting entry. So I think it works really well for what they had to work with. And Mister Freeze is sort of interesting at this point. You know, he's got credited Bob Kane. You know, and apparently <laughs> in, in white in white ink they wrote and Bob Bill Finger, but you just don't see it. Um, that was a joke. And uh, it, 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 what's his interesting is his
1: first appearance is Batman one twenty one. 1959, the idea that Bob Kane had anything to do with Batman that far into Batman's publishing history is hysterical.
2: That is true. Uh, and, and he didn't first appear as Mr. Freeze. He appeared as Mr. Zero. Mr. Zero. And he, Yep. So the interesting thing is at this point – and I didn't really think about this until I got to here. Is, you see there's not much text. Bob Greenberger did not much right here at all. Right write much here at all. Barely that... more than a column. And that's actually, because I went back and I, and, I, again, I don't have my normal resource source, but it looks like prior to the Batman animated series, which is, this is before, about a year before the animated series, I think he only had like a dozen or so appearances. I had forgotten that he wasn't as prevalent as other characters back then. And, uh, and in fact, there's not even a mention of his wife, which, you know, of course, once the Batman animated series comes on, every version of Mr. Freeze is all about the wife issues. So uh, it's sort of interesting how how much he's evolved since that point. Uh, there is some interesting texture about how he's perhaps one of the most insane of Batman's villains because he continues to grow. Uh, his madness continues to grow, which is sort of interesting. Um, but yeah, I found it interesting, the, the, the comparison of the year there. Now, wasn't he, he was on the Batman TV, 60s series, right?
1: Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, despite the fact he didn't appear in the comics that much, he had a disproportionate pop culture footprint because he appeared in three different episodes of the Batman TV series, all played by different actors each time. Oh, uh, so, I mean, and and that's kind of remarkable when you think about that, that of all the characters to do, Mr. Freeze is probably the most expensive to put together, you know, in terms of the costume, the power set, you know, and not, you know, not the Scarecrow, not Two-Face, but they did Mr. Freeze three different times. It's kind of remarkable, really.
2: Well, I mean, was it really that expensive? They just put some blue makeup on the guy and put a well, helmet but he's on.
1: Got, but he's got like a freeze gun, and I mean that's a little harder to do than just like a regular criminal okay. uh, kind of for the relatively low, low budget of the Batman TV series. It's, it still seems kind of ambitious. So, yeah. uh, And he, again, he was played by some amazing actors. He was, he was played by – I just met George Sanders – uh, who appeared in a lot of great films and some stuff by Val Luton He played by Eli Wallach, the legendary Eli Wallach, and played by director and sometime actor Otto Preminger. That's so, the one uh, I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was played. So I don't know why they couldn't retain uh, the, the an actor uh, across more than one episode. I don't know, but uh, yeah. So he's played by three different uh, three different actors, and it said I love those episodes. And this is a fun character, and of course he then later appeared in one of the great movies of all time, Batman and Robin.
2: Well, once Batman anime series uh, took the character on, it seems like he's been in constant, you know, appearances ever since then to me. And maybe I'm missing some appearances from the earlier days. Maybe the movie did the, – the TV series of the 60s did make it more popular, and I'm just missing those appearances. I don't know. But I love the inset pictures. You know, he's being trapped in the freezer there. Uh, then you've got a great shot where he's frozen Rob, Batman and Robin, a very uh, you know 1950 style Batman and Robin in blocks of ice. And then you've got him looking very hostile with his sunglasses on, you know, blasting somebody with his freeze ray. So I, it's, and, and it's fun. And, I like, in the inset, you know, um, the the class picture, he's, like, raising one eyebrow, very, like, Leonard Nimoy, like, hmm. So, uh, super fun. Super fun. Yeah. If you want more on Mr. Freeze, you can check out Batman Nightcast right here on our network with uh, Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Or you can check out The Overlooked Dark Knight or um, watch some cartoons, man. Yeah. Oh, I, I, at this
1: point, by the way, he hadn't appeared for about three years. Oh, okay. I, you know, I'm surprised they haven't brought back somebody else as Mr. Zero because now that the name is – Open, Mister Vicky could use that too. Uh, so next up is Project Cadmus, another Jack Kirby creation from Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, one thirty-five. Now well, this is interesting. It actually gets two separate listings. It lists the historical version from Jimmy Olsen, which I just said, and then the current version, which is Superman Annual number two, which is kind of funny because I mean it's it's just technology. You really hmm. don't think that it would need – I mean I know that Superman Annual Number 2 is the burn era, so maybe there was some history that they felt they had to redo. But it's sort of funny that technology really gets two versions, uh, Two versions. Well, t- technology is not DC? even the
2: right term. Like, they, It should be like corporation or organiza- right. organization would have been a better right, term. Right. It's not mother box. Yeah, like like even Gang could have been like evil or bad guy or villain organization or something like that. Organization might have worked better as a term. And, of course, you know, a lot of this they were they, – they set these categories up before they got to issue 12, so they didn't know what they might be doing down the line. But, yeah, um, I, I guess there was enough of a difference when, in the original storylines
1: versus the post-crisis versions. So, uh yeah, I have um, it's, it's drawn by I should mention it's drawn by Dan, Dan Juergens and Dennis Janky we've got the Guardian uh and then the, the the who's the guy with the horns I forget his double name double x double x it's a it's an okay listing but to me I my eyes just kind of glaze over at this I'm just like all right whatever okay
2: well my favorite thing in any sort of Cadmus stuff is a Dabney uh Dabney Donovan which is the guy in the upper right hand corner on the monitor and that Crazy mustache! I just love his Brillo pad or you know bristly mustache. I just absolutely love that. And you know, and also Project Cadmus at this point is is well known in post crisis for giving for bringing us back the Guardian. You know, it's a clone with the, with their his brain and giving us a new Newsboy Legion. So all of that was you know, we wouldn't have that without Project Cadmus. So that works well. And. Man, has DC milked them in other media. Holy crap. I started looking, and I just stopped after a while. Because, <laughs> I mean, uh, the TV show The Titans uses Project Cadmus a lot. The Young Justice cartoon uses Project Cadmus. Tons and tons and tons of other media uses Project Cadmus. I was like, wow. I had no idea. So uh, for more on them, of course, from Crisis to Crisis, Superman podcast would be a good place. Uh, I, I will say, uh, you said your eyes glaze over it. It is kind of a boring drawing. It really kind of is. Other than, again, Dabney looking over him like <laughs> – but um, that's that's my impersonation. You mentioned the technology border, um, and it's written by Roger Stern. So – and um, yeah, I guess that's really about it. And um, yeah. you know, I've already mentioned the Superman books quite a few times, so any of those would work.
1: Yeah. Uh, next up is The Question, uh, drawn by Dennis Cowan, text by Mark Wade. Uh, this is there. I've this is the the second version. This is the DC Universe version. The historicals first appearance is Blue Beetle number one. Blue, by the way, mentions Blue Beetle fourth series number one, and then the modern version, which appeared in the Question number one. It's fun. There is no um, creator credit, even though he is a creation of Steve Ditko, uh, but they don't yeah. list it here. Uh, and it's again, it's drawn by Dennis Cowan, and it's just terrific. It's a great drawing. The anatomy is a little wonky. But it, it kind of doesn't matter. It's so stylized that it just sort of works And as The question is just standing there with some smoke forming a question as it goes over his uh, – sort of uh, fades over his head. And we get the logo, and there, he's standing in this kind of like uh, r- ruins of, I guess, Hub City, which is where he uh, – is his piece of operations. The, um, it's, as listed by Mark Waid, it's, it's written a bit like Steve Ditko. Uh, kind of style like, he is mm. the question it 's a little more kind of like short declarative sentences as opposed to some of the other listings, which are a little more natural and story like this one is a little more direct uh, it 's a great listing the,
2: the I would say the front images yeah, the front image is absolutely stunning, very impressionistic uh, is probably the bright phrase for that. It looks almost like a Billson cabbage piece you know it's yeah. so scratchy and stuff it 's beautiful, like you said, the smoke forming the question, the logo looks great I, I do love the front the backside images. Yeah, they're okay. Um, Dennis Cowan really took a a very stylistic approach to the question, and it's here on the page, and that's fine. It's just not my thing. I never got into. I tried, but I never really got into this version of the question. Like, I love him in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon when he's crazy. You know, I, I love that version. I love him in some other stories, but this era was just so steeped in like private eye and their own subplots and. And, you know, Richard Dragon and all that just didn't do much for me. So um, the big thing that stuck out with me here is I'm reading the names, and I, this has bugged me before, and I finally was able to articulate it because I did a little research. So his name, you know, Victor Sage is what, we're Vic Sage is we always know him as, but his real name is Charles Victor Zazazi or whatever, right? S Z A S Z, very unusual name. By the way, there's a ba- so Victor Zazazi, whatever. There is a Batman villain who's like this crazy serial killer with knives who cuts himself all the time. Which is Victor. Zashi also. Except the only difference is the the first two letters are S and Z. In the bad guy, those letters are transposed. Z is first, then S. And I was like, oh, there's got to be a connection. So I Googled this and all over the place. And there's a lot of people asking the same question. There's got to be a (laughs) connection. There is zero connection between these two characters. Which makes no sense. I don't know what. When this version's – like I don't know if Steve Dicko revealed his name was not Vic Sage and gave us the other name, whatever. But I do know the Batman no, I think villain – No,
1: I think that's a Denny O'Neill creation when he, when he get, got the new series.
2: Okay. But I do know the Batman villain – or at least I'm pretty sure – Batman villain showed up later. So why did they make his name so stupidly similar? I mean it's hmm. ridiculous if there's no connection. It just irritates the hell out of me. Anyway, um, the last issue of the Question series at this point was on the shelves eighteen months ago, and uh, you mentioned Mark White. It is interesting they didn't get Danny O'Neill or someone to write it. But anyway, it's red for hero, of course. And uh, there's, you know, he's appeared in a lot of other multimedia. Um, I would say, you know, check out the Just Like a Limited cartoon if you more want more of the Question because it's it's really awesome. And uh, the guy from Jeffrey uh, Combs. Reanimator, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, Jeffrey Combs, Reanimator. Yep. Yeah, one of the great pieces of casting on that show. Yeah. All right. All next right. up is everybody's favorite, the Red Tornado, or just Red Tornado, uh, and this is the, of course, the, uh, the, you know, the Justice League member. Uh, of course, you know, this ninth iteration as a, as a character, Tornado Tyrant, Tornado Champion, now Red Tornado, and here he is in kind of his newer, updated costume, as drawn by Jason Pearson and Joe Rubenstein with text by Bob Greenberger, and we see him on the front using his powers. We've got his classic logo. And then on the back, we see him with Kathy Smith, we see him with the Justice League, and then we see him taking on Captain Adam. And, you know, I mean, he's retornado. He's, he's always been sort of, you know, an also ran character, other than that miniseries he got by Kirk Buzik, which is actually pretty good if you've, anybody's ever read it. Uh, he's always just been. Somebody sort of bit... might be a little biased because they wrote an article for Back Issue on it, just saying. I did write an article about Red Tornado. I did, and, and it was uh, you know, hey, I'm proud of it. It was, a, it was you should a fun, be. It was a good fun, article, fun, fun gig. Thank you. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's nice. I, I like this listing. He looks pretty cool. I
2: freaking love the front art on this one. This is one of my favorite entries in the book. And it's it's freaking Red Tornado, which is crazy. Um, I think he looks great. I love the almost Todd McFarlane explosive cape. It looks fantastic. This is my favorite version of the Red Tornado costume. Because I always thought Red Tornado's costume was ugly as hell, whether it be his original version of the JSA or the later one, which was all the red and yellow and the stripes and the boots, and it was just an explosion of yellow everywhere. I hated it. And this version is so sleek. I mean, you always talk about minimal... Well, not on the air, but you and I talk about... You like minimalist designs and stuff like this. This is like the most minimalist Red Tornado design you can do without losing his identity, because you get the yellow arrow on his head, and you get the T on the chest and that's all you need it tells the whole story it's great i love the face mask because at this point he had a solid uh solid mask it was more like an iron man sort of thing where like the mouth and the eyes didn't move they're just slits because at this point you know inside him is just you know a tornado at this point we don't think he's an android we just we know he's an air elemental and i love the way the wind is swirling around his legs and his feet i think this piece is gorgeous.
1: Yeah, it's a really solid listing. And look, I, I, I agree. I, I, you know, of course, I kind of like the older costumes. That's the one he had in Justice League. But I can't argue what? that this isn't a better suit. It's just much more sleek. They kept the arrow on his head, which I never really understood what that design was supposed to be. The arrow pointing, pointing to what the It's motion known. of
2: wind, but whatever. I,
1: I guess. But I mean, I like the T shape using, um, the reverse, uh, you mm-hmm. know, like the, the reverse shapes where the, the T is made up out of the yellow shapes. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. It makes a, it makes a kind of, jokey character at times look really cool. And he's another one that a lot has been done with. Of course, he's a major fixture on the Young Justice cartoon. I mean, mm-hmm. he became like their mentor. So this is another one of these concepts where, you know, it's a little goofy, but, you know, you, you get him handled right. And he's really pretty cool.
2: Yeah. And Peter David did that first in the Young Justice uh, comic. And so they just carried that on into the animated series. Now, um again, I, I gotta talk about the mask again for just a second, because I, I the eyes and the mouth always bother me in the original Red Tornado. But here it, it just it, it it helps lend the robotic quality and I think that's great. The, the the solid eye, slits, and mouth. Now I also gotta give credit, this this particular version of the costume was created for him by Firestorm. So, Firestorm Extra created it for Red Tornado, so I've got to give him a little credit. I mean, truthfully, it's the artist who did it, but whatever. Uh, his origin is confusing as hell with the Tornado Champion, Tornado Tyrant, you know, him being right. the JSA, then an Air Elemental, all that nonsense. Now, you said Kathy Smith. I thought it was Kathy Sutton. Oh, Kathy uh, Sutton. I'm sorry.
1: He's yeah. John Smith. That's his name.
2: Yeah. Now, if I remember right. I don't think she ever gets mentioned in any of it. Like, she's not mentioned under relation, relatives, which, even though I'm pretty sure he adopted the little girl, didn't yeah, he? Her.
1: Yeah, he's right. He, yeah. Yeah. He, he, yeah. Yep.
2: But Kathy doesn't, Kathy's, Kathy's in the art, although I don't think she had blonde hair either, did she? I don't know. Uh,
1: she I she, she had is, brown she, hair. She's
2: blonde, yeah. Okay. Either way, she didn't get mentioned once in this whole thing, which is kind of no, shocking because yeah, Kathy strange, was yeah. such a big part of his, his story at this point. And, um, it, it, he hadn't appeared in over a year and that would have been in captain Adam. So really I feel like this is more like just a nod to that, even though he, he next will really become uh, a player in the primal force. Well, if, uh, yeah. Primal. Wait, which one came first? Primal force or young justice. I think primal force came first. Cause that came out of zero hour. Uh, and then we get the young justice series and in young justice. He's sort of broken. Um, No, never mind. Ignore everything I'm saying. It was Primal Force 3. Doesn't matter. He looks great. Written here by Bob Greenberger. Borders, Red for for Hero, of course. Uh, First appearance is confusing as hell because they give a first appearance for each individual iteration of him, which is bonkers. You get 1960, you get 1963, you get 1968. Yeah, whatever. Okay, folks, that's fine. So if you want more on him, a couple places to check out. You can check out the Justice League of America satellite blog from many years ago where they chronicled every appearance of Justice League. So you get a lot of Red Tornado in there. Uh, The guy who wrote that is kind of a friend of mine. A little bit. Uh, Doug Zuesha used to run a a blog about Red Tornado called Red Tornado's Path. That's still out there. It's older info, but you can check it out. Of course, you mentioned the Young Justice. You can read the comics. You can watch the show. Uh, You can check out Primal Force. He's also appeared on the Supergirl live-action TV show, so he's he's out there in the pop culture Mm -hmm. quite a bit. Yeah, that's true. I think even
1: my family knows who he is, which is crazy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's really – if you want to read some really good Red Tornado comics, read Just League of America, original series 192 to 193. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The origin, whether he takes on his old – his creator, Tuomara. Those are great comics. Uh, So all right, next up is Silver Banshee. And, uh, you know, if you are an ass man, this is your listing Uh, because (laughs) it's drawn by – Dusty Abel, and again, Terry Austin. Silver Banshee is sticking her booty right in the camera's face uh, and kind of doing a whole twerking thing going on. She I don't is twerking, e- you're right. Yeah, I don't exactly understand what that's supposed to be, uh, but I guess if you're, like, into dark goth chicks, this is your thing, man, because she's, she's a... Uh, a Superman villain, and uh, we see her taking on Superman, first appeared in Action Comics 495. This is – there is a whole lot of listing. This is 30 pounds of listing crammed into a 20-pound bag. Uh, yes. Because there is not an inch of space left here because they talk about two different uh, versions of the Silver Banshee. Well, not two versions, but two different beings. There's McDougal and then that Silver Banshee. We see her taking on Superman. Uh, it's, uh, there's a whole lot going on here.
2: Yeah. And one more thing about the front where she's – as she's twerking, she's got this giant axe and she's attacking a book, a mystical book, which is really tied into origin. So that's sort of neat. And you see the pages floating away with images of her on there, which is kind of cool. Yeah, the, the history – I don't even want to get into it. It's, it's complicated. I didn't even get it. And I thought, oh, Rob's covering this issue. I don't really have to pay that much attention. So, uh, but it is worth mentioning she has also exploded in other media. I didn't realize how much. I mean she's been on Smallville. She was on Supergirl, Justice League Unlimited, Batman in The Bold. Um, it, it, the list just keeps going. She's been in just about every cartoon, uh, a bunch of video games, a bunch of directed DVDs, which is uh, – cr- movies, which is crazy. So she's out there in the consciousness. I do want to mention on Supergirl. She was played by the incredibly sexy uh, Italia Riggi, uh, which is worth mentioning because she is married to Robbie Amell,
1: who played Firestorm on Flash. Uh, ah, okay. Sort of.
2: Yes. Um, so, B- Border is black for villain. First appearance uh, is, uh, actually, as you already mentioned, that December 1987. That's fine. And uh, written by Roger Stern within an inch of his life. So, go check out From Crisis to Crisis and maybe Michael Bailey can explain her origin to you.
1: I think part of the reason she's appeared so much, is she has a great visual. Like her visual is good. Yes. she's got this skull face. She's in all black and white. She has this flowing hair. I mean, she looks really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's and part of it. I mean, yeah, that well. drawing of the drawing of him taking on Superman looks really cool. And uh, so she's yeah, i She seems like she's uh, destined for like cosplay. You know, I haven't seen a lot of Silver Banshee cosplay, but it must be it must be out there because it just seems like it, it just lends itself to that.
2: And to be fair, we are selling her short, but we have covered her
1: on previous iterations of Who's Who. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, next up is a Legion character, our first Legion uh, character of the book, uh, Stealth, uh, who first appeared in Legion L. Whatever, L- whatever, whatever. 89. Number f- yeah, number one. Number one, as drawn by Keith Giffen and George Pratt. Uh, that's unusual to me that George Pratt, uh, the painter, is the anchor on this, unless there's hmm. another George Pratt that I'm f- not familiar with. I can't imagine why that is. Uh, and uh, we see her on the front cover, and she's got some sort of – what is that, a gun of some sort? Like what is that thing that she's holding, that she's posing mm-hmm. with? That's right. Yep. Okay. it's a thing. All right, it's a thing. Uh, we see then in the inset. We see her uh, staring off at uh, Breneck 5, and uh, yeah, I don't care
2: yeah this is a complete mismatch this was a mistake uh, i love I love Keith Giffen in this era but if he's doing a who's who entry they should have relegated him to the five y l Characters of Legion, not the acronym Legion. While it is interesting to see a different art interpretation. He is so associated with the five YL Legion to have him do the old Legion, especially on a character that has always been represented as very sexy and very physical and very you know cat-like as far, as, not really cat-like, but just, but just her movements were very sensual, like a dancer. This is not the way to do it, folks. Um, and they just reused, by the way, the image to, for her profile pic, which always yeah. takes me yep. off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they should have got Barry Kitson to do this Who was doing the Legion book or any other You know, uh, McGuire did a bunch of the covers Anyone else could have shown her Because she's an interesting character I mean, she's very mysterious, she's very violent She's very physical She's got this ability to absorb uh, and deflect sound She can heal really well Did you Did you happen to read this entry? Because if you had, I think you would have mentioned something
1: What did I miss? I read it a while ago and I don't remember it So what? What the? what did I miss?
2: That's his way of saying he didn't read it or didn't pay attention.
1: No, I actually. She,
2: all right, okay. So you know who Vril Dox is, right? Vril yes. Dox, too. Yeah, the, the, the total asshole who leads the, the the acronym Legion, which is a great character. She raped and killed him. Not like knocked him out. She killed him. They had to clone a new body for him because he was dead. Now he's a ro- he's a computer, so they could just download it into his head and all that business. But yeah, he was dead. She. And not only did she rape, but she got pregnant and she gave birth to his son. Which Um. you see in the inset. Right, exactly. So it was a little bit crazy uh, what this character did. So anyway, a neat character. I, I dug her. Um, and I, I've enjoyed my reread of Legion, acronym Legion I've been doing since we started doing Who's Who because uh, it got me into rereading again. At this point, Legion, Ac- acronym Legion was on Legion 91, number 31. And uh, if you want more on the character here, you can check out the Legion of Super Bloggers or um, go to the DC Universe app and read some of these for yourself, folks. Because the border – oh, by the way, the border is red and written by Mark
1: Wade. All right. Next up is Suicide Squad. Everybody knows them. They're movie stars. Uh, it's drawn by Geoff <laughs> Isherwood and Robert Campanella. We see them as, as again. This is this is a listing for the modern version of the team, which are all the supervillains. And we see Bronze Tiger and Nightshade, Captain Boomerang, Count Vertigo, Deadshot, Poison Ivy. Uh, I think, and uh, of course, uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, Amanda uh, Waller. Amanda Waller. Yes. Uh, and uh, the, there's a few more. Uh, Oracle. Right there. Oh, the Oracle right in the wheelchair, yes. You've got the Adam, and the, and the, the Adam. new
2: Adam, and in the back, the guy in the trench coat. you have any idea who that is?
1: The new thinker, I
2: believe. And do you know who the new thinker is?
1: I have no idea who the new thinker is. Cliff Carmichael. Oh, sociopath Cliff Carmichael. Oh, good.
2: From Firestorm. Firestorm's high school <sighs> nemesis is thinker. I know how uh, much you love that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, okay. <laughs> Take a it right. right. It's okay. I don't. I just. All right. Okay. It um, <laughs> talks about their first appearance. The historical version is Brave in the Bowl number twenty-five. And for those of you who don't remember those, who remember I mean, the Suicide Squad were just kind of like a spy team of like secret yeah. agents. It's really. It's a yeah, it was a war comic basically, and it, it, you know, the the version that we see now of all the villains is completely disconnected from that version. I mean it's, you know, they're, they're, it's not new continuity, but I mean no one would be familiar with it, with it as opposed to the version you saw in the movie, uh, which well, are all these villains and stuff. You do have one connection, which is Rick Flagg. Rick, Rick Flagg Flag was the leader of the
2: original squad, and then he's brought back here. Or is it his son that's brought back here? I can't remember. Um, Because there's a Rick Flag and a Rick Flag Jr. I get a little mixed up. Either way. Um, So you got the Rick Flag connection between the two, but that's it. All right. Well, well, there's more to talk about. Okay. So the art on the front is interesting. I do – I like one thing. I like Amanda Waller sort of like yelling at Nightshade, like, wait! Like, obviously, you know, because the squad's always running off without doing what she wants. So I like that aspect where she doesn't have control of it. Uh, I don't like her having her hand on Oracle's wheelchair. Now, at this point, though, it's probably not as firmly established, but Barbara Gordon is probably better off not having handles in her wheelchair because she's such an independent person in her wheelchair. Um, I do think this is – and someone correct me if I'm wrong here. I think this is the very first Who's Who entry with Oracle.
1: Um, um. Yeah, she's not in the, the, the classic Who's Who listing, I believe yeah. so.
2: I think we got a Batgirl entry before Oh, no, wait, no, we did have an Oracle entry That's right, because it was done by Barry Kitson My mistake, it was a Bar- or it was Barbara Gordon was the entry I take that back Because we, we went back and forth about the BK Thinking it was Bob Kane But it was Barry yeah, Kitson yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. time Because they had that Okay, Anyway, so I take that whole thing back But uh, it is interesting to note When I was reading the entry here They talk about how Rick Flagg Jr. was raised by Jeb Stewart Like of Haunted Tang Which is kind of cool the way they <laughs> connected to that there is a – it's written here by Robert Greenberger, so I don't know how literal to take this entry because really – it's John Ostendor, it's, you know, It's his baby. But it says here that Oracle uh, is a wizard with computers and master strategist. She could inherit the squad leadership in the near future. I don't know if Bob's just like writing whatever he felt like or if Ostringer was on a path to put Oracle in charge of the Suicide Squad. That's, that was an interesting development for me. Now, uh, other things to note. Okay, we talked about Cliff Carmichael. Ugh. Um Adam Cray. Do you even know who that is, by the way? Adam Cray? Yeah. No. Adam. No. He was a, a replacement Adam when Ray Palmer was thought dead. So they actually introduced another Adam, and he was in the Suicide Squad. And he was pretty cool. I really liked Atom. Um, what else you've got? Of course, you've got uh, Vixen on the team. At this point, Manhunter, um, which is Mark Shaw, was on the team. He'd eventually get his own series, so that's all kind of cool. And uh, let's see. Right now, Suicide Squad was on issue 56, which was the Dragon's Head story. They're not too far from the end of the series. And the border is red for hero team. That's a bit questionable, you know. I don't know if it should really be called Hero Team or not, but anyway. Um, first appearance you already mentioned. They do mention the Legends number two for the modern version. Anyway, for more on Suicide Squad, yeah, a million different places. You've already mentioned the movie. Probably not the best place to get your Suicide Squad. I and mean, there's what? another movie coming out soon. Which may, hopefully will be more interesting. Uh, you get the Justice League Unlimited cartoon or Justice League, whatever. They did a great episode with the Suicide Squad or they, or they called him Task Force X, I believe. Uh, lots of video games. There's direct-to-DVD movies. Our buddy Aaron Head Moss does a podcast called Task Force X. Lots and lots of places you can check out. Did, did you mention, by the way, um, Jeff Isherwood and Robert Campanella did the art? I
1: couldn't remember. I did. I did. Okay. All right. Oh, All right. Let's go. That, that version of the Adam makes me sad, by the way. Uh, well, um, why? Adam Cray? Yeah, it just the look of it. It's just so awful. <laughs> the, well, think, okay, he was a neat character.
2: He was interesting. Cha- all right. Because okay. there was a big mystery about him for a while there. But anyway.
1: All right. Next up is, <laughs> is Tasmanian Devil uh, drawn by Dine Tasmania. Dine Tasmania. Chris uh, What is this? Chris Bosniak and Malcolm Jones. Uh, this is the more animalistic version of Tasmanian Devil, the character from The Super Friends, number seven. It even says that right there. I like it's his height, six feet, usually stooped over. Uh, (laughs) so he's kind of like the big savage version, uh, of this, uh, of this character. Yes. Uh, he's 210 pounds add 50 when wet. Okay. Uh, written by Kevin Dooley. Um, this, I, I kind of like this drawing. It's certainly for a super friends character. It's more on the savage side. The one thing that I think almost single-handedly ruins it, it is the worst logo treatment. I, in, in this entire book, um, the the devil word is okay, but then you have this incredibly boring typeset where it just says Tasmanian. In fact, the name of that font, font is is called Wright. Uh, I used to have that. Uh, it <laughs> yeah. is just it is terrible. Uh, the listing itself isn't bad, and on the inside we see him punching Guy Gardner because everyone likes to do that. It's like a one punch, yeah, uh, the one punch, yeah, yeah. So this is uh, this is again, and he hails from Canberra, Australia. Which I think is where Paul Hicks lives, if I
2: remember correctly. I might have that wrong but because there's only like four cities in Australia. Um, so a lot of interesting things to talk about here. It's written very, very funny. Uh, there's a whole shtick here, um, born of a mother that was aware Tasmanian devil into a father who was the leader of the Tasmanian devil cult. The Tasmanian devil was given a Tasmanian devil amulet after selling his soul to a Tasmanian devil who gave him a portion of blah, 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 blah. It keeps going and going. It's very funny. Now, a lot of that, that was either lifted or homaged to when Keith Giffen wrote the Tasmanian devil. Who's Who entry in the annual in 1989. Remember when the 1989 annuals had, uh, who's Who entries in the back? There was a Tasmanian devil one, which had a very similar block of text, if not exactly the same. So that's, but, but then it goes on and talks more about it. It's an interesting character. They, they hint at something here without coming out and saying it. So, so I feel like they should have gone a little further. They talk about, they, they say he, uh, I don't know how they were to hear something about he, he fights for justice or whatever and, and, uh, the freedom of sexual orientation. Tasmanian devils revealed to be gay about this time, and why they didn't feel like they could come out and say that, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate the subtlety and not making that the focus of the character. You know, because we've talked a lot of times about a, a character being gay is just part of their story. You don't have to make it the, um, but it's
1: the, 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 not their defining trait. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Thank you. It's a better way to
1: put it. I, I wish they had. You know, come out and set it here, though. Yeah, I mean, again, like a lot of things in the 90s, this is that they're kind of like they're making him the more savage version. Because I remember in the Super Friends comic, which I am covering, of course, over in my show, For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, um, Tasmanian Devil was just like a guy. I mean, he was like oh, yeah. a superhero, but he was just basically in a costume. And here he's kind of like they really are playing up that he transforms into this beast. I mean, they even mentioned that in his – in his alter ego, Hugh Dawkins, he's a vegetarian, but then when he's Tasmanian Devil, he's a carnivore. So they're really pushing the whole idea that he is—he's he like turning into Man Bat, uh, as opposed to the Superman's version where he was just kind of like a regular dude.
2: Yeah, and, and of course, you know, it's, as you said, it's the savage '80s and '90s, so that makes it yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So uh, at this point, the Justice League International comics were on the breakdown storyline. He is a. I guess a member of the Jazz League International Embassy, so he's sort of part of the team. Uh, this is one of the first, earliest entries of Chris Wozniak. I don't really remember if we've seen anything else. Malcolm Jones is an interesting choice for inkers. You know, he usually inked Kelly Jones, if I remember right, didn't he? Uh, uh, am, I, am, am I misremembering that? Uh, I didn't. I don't recall that. Okay. All right. I could be wrong on that. Maybe I'm just conflating because of the last name. I could be wrong all the way around in this entry. Anyway, for more on him, check out uh, the For All Mankind podcast, obviously Superfriends, or check out the Just League International.
1: All right. So our last listing of the book, Zatanna, drawn by Eric Schanauer, uh, who, I, as far as I know, didn't have any real connection to. Zatanna. Uh, in fact the only connection i think he had of justice league was he drew the secret origins mm-hmm. number 32 which was the the origin of the jla and he drew her in like a little inset but on the front she's in her her classic uh, fishnet togs so or ryan daly's paying attention she's uh throwing a she's controlling a, a a wave of water using her magic powers on the back we see her with her father zatara we see her in her her Cinderella based costume with the Justice League, and then we see her later in her th- yet her third costume. And then there's a very adorable little inset of her looking over her shoulder, kind of almost winking at the, uh, at the viewer. So, I mean, it's a 10. It's one of the great supporting characters. She's listed as supernatural as opposed to hero, but that's what, you know, that's what DC kind of did. The minute you were a supernatural character, you were supernatural whether you were hero or villain. At least she fits into the
2: supernatural category. Yes. I mean, she's yeah. very, very supernatural. You know, that works. Uh, I, I love the image on the front. Absolutely, with the giant wave coming around. I mean, it looks like she's sort of under a bridge, maybe, or up against a, a lighthouse or something, and all this water's splashing out. Because, you know, at, at one point, she her powers were sort of limited to elemental powers. Uh, I think that's not the case at this point in her history. But either way, she's using, you know, the elements to attack, which is great. The inset pictures look fantastic. You mentioned the inset, where she's adorable. She's also got a top hat on, which really helps sell. It. Um, the thing about the text, which is written by Bob Greenberg, is I love, love, love that there's no stupid mention of Dr. Mist. Um, which is great because that really got all sucked up into it because of the secret origins. I mean, Doctor Mist and her origin were in Felix Faust. Were all tied together for a while there. Glad that's
1: sort of been purged. And um, what was that guy's name? Was it Adam that she left Justice League Detroit with, or whatever? Yeah, that was that was his name. Yeah, yeah. He, he was like this godlike figure, and she got sucked into his orbit, and then she decided to investigate him further, and she left the Justice League very abruptly as that bo- as that book was winding down.
2: Yep. So I'm I'm glad that's been purged from here too. Uh, I'm glad John Constantine has been worked into it. I always like that sort of connection with them and uh, it works really well. So, you know, uh, first appearance is Hawkman. I didn't realize that. Uh, Back in Hawkman number four in 1964. I did not know that. So, and more recently she had appeared in the Books of Magic series with Timothy Hunter and John Constantine. And for more on her, you can check out the Power of Fishnets podcast and – uh, or flowers and fishnets. That's the old one. That's right. Okay. Uh, and the Batman the animated series. She had a couple of appearances as well. She was on lots of, lots. Of. Yeah, and Young Justice and lots and lots and lots of different places. So she's yeah. she's a big name in the DC universe, and she deserves it.
1: All right. Well, that's gonna. All do right, it. man. Woof.
2: Uh, All who's right, did so. another
1: who's who in the books.
2: So as I've been asking you every month since we've started the 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 loose leaf, who are your favorite entries in the book?
1: Well, certainly Man Bat, uh, mm-hmm. Mira. Z- I like the Zatanna one a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the Bibbo one a lot. Uh, <laughs> okay. I do. I, it's drummed by Jerry Ordway. You know, uh, oh, it's fun. It's um, fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, those are, I think those are basically my favorites.
2: Okay. Um, I, my favorites uh, also include Man Bat, uh, also includes Zatanna, both of those. I've also added Red Tornado. Uh, oh, Red Tornado
1: is really good too. Yeah, that's true. I've added Hawk
2: Woman. I think the Hawk Woman one is great. I think the Girl one is fantastic.
1: Oh, yeah. How did, I, yeah. How, how did I miss that one? Elastigirl. Yeah, that one's terrific.
2: And I like uh, Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress. Uh, if I had to pick the best entry of the book, it would come down to uh, Man Bat and Elastic Girl. would have to duke it out. And uh, she's taller, so she might win. So I don't know. All right. But great issue. And all right, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick podcast from a break. And when we come back, we are going to do your listener feedback. In
0: 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, That's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, This makes no sense. 2021, they realized we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, This is pure fantasy now. 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language uh, Film. That, that's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. Uh, and check out our website, WaitingForDoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you.
2: Craptonite is... The dream given form. Craptonite is...
0: Primitive
2: culture. Craptonite is... Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Craptonite is...
0: The beat you can dance to.
2: Craptonite
0: is... A big fat woman with thighs the size of a hippo's.
1: Craptonite is... A podcast featuring two guys talking crap about sci-fi fantasy. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or even Twitter, at Craptonite235. Just look for Craptonite. It's kryptonite, smelt with an A.
2: Welcome back for Who's Who, Hows, and Whys. Uh, we are going to cover your feedback, but before we do that... We want to give a special shout-out and thank you to some folks. Uh, As you know, the the Fire & Water Podcast Network recently launched a Patreon uh, because uh, the hosts and ourselves have been been incurring all these costs for a number of years, and they have gotten to be a lot more. Because if you haven't noticed, Rob's producing a crap ton of shows, so the hosting fees have gone through the roof, and we reached out to you guys and asked for some help,
1: and you guys have been incredibly generous and supportive. And, And Rob, by the way, what is our Patreon link? Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, uh, there you can make a one-time pledge or, even better, an ongoing monthly pledge to support the network at various levels.
2: And and what that does is it helps keep the shows on the air, helps us keep the lights on, and uh, it's really the best way uh, to help support our network if you're willing to help out and we would appreciate it and if you can't you know maybe you can just share the link out there and let people know about it anyway uh, there are certain different levels of sponsorship different tiers where you get different rewards and one of those tiers involves you getting mentioned on the fire and water podcast show of your choice and these fine folks have been kind enough to support our network and wanted to, to get their support earmarked for the who's who podcast that includes Christopher Liddon Corey Drew Damian Whiter Daniel Butnick David A. Gutierrez, Gord Tolton Jeremiah Jones Goldstein Michael Acheson. Michael Atchison Michael O'Brien, Nathan Archer, Paul Kienzel, and Tom Panner-Reese. Oof, thank you so much to you guys and for everyone that has helped us uh, with the Patreon. Again, it just helps keep the lights on. So please go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. All right. With that, Rob, uh, If pe- you know, I should have mentioned this at the top of the show. It's kind of silly mentioning at the end, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, Rob, if people
1: wanted to see some of the entries from this issue, where would they go? Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and look for the accompanying gallery post for this episode. Absolutely. So you'll see some of those there.
2: So let's get into your feedback, folks. First up, we've got some iTunes reviews, which are so very much appreciated. Thank you. They help raise the profile of the show. And that is one of the ways that people keep finding it every
1: month. You want to kick us off, Rob? Yeah. The first one is from Al Girding, our pal. And he says, uh, the, the, the review says, a lot of fun. A lot of fun to listen to. Even better if you have the issues in front of you. Warning, you will want to spend money on back issues after each episode. <laughs> those That's are called kickbacks right that 's us stimulating the economy
2: so uh, so, and then we got a review from this is funny. Rick Ick Ick X is his handle on iTunes. And he says, uh, this podcast was always needed as a companion to the legendary comic, and now we have it. And then he goes on. That's, That's actually the subject line. And he says, nowadays, folks who are nostalgic for 1980s goodness need not go far to find podcasts and other online content for that interest. Same for folks who are into DC superheroes and enjoy discussions thereof. So, is there anything special that makes the Fire and Water Network Who's Who podcast really that much of a must listen for those of us interested in the dc universe of 30 mumble 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 years ago hmm. yes yes there is this podcast is your page by page audio annotation orama to accompany the who's who comic you already treasure your host rob kelly and the irredeemable shark yes folks he did write the word shark which cracks me up, uh, are funny and informative in equal measure. Their fan knowledge and interest supplementing one another. But here's the genius of the show. The, bo- the boys move so briskly along through each issue that no pages lingered on for too long. Except Rob thinks I spent too long on Aquaman this time. Anyway, well, somehow they deliver so many interesting facts th- there uh, throughout that each episode is a long-form podcast listening bliss. Listeners of this show and the network is on will enjoy the quasi-competitive banter and reoccurring jokes. I, I don't know that it's really quasi, is it? I mean, no, I don't think I so. I feel like. I guess it's pretty honest. Anyway, uh, fans of the comic Who's Who will find that this is the show they've always needed to compliment it, and here it is. Not only is this show itself worthy of your time, but it also inspires terrific listener feedback below each episode post on the Fire & Water Network website. How else can you know what all the discussion is about? Only one way. Listen and subscribe, and don't forget Slipknot. Man, that was awesome. That's Thank an you an so extensive much for you. review. That was awesome. He could write some of our promotional copies. He's mm-hmm. so good. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Now, as he said, we're going to get into your feedback, the fantastic feedback that you guys leave, and we're going to be pulling this from uh, our website, which is com. These are going to be comments from who's who number 11, and we also we've got a couple of emails too. So remember, going forward, we are only pulling the website comments in the iTunes reviews and the emails because there's just too much on the social media. We, we, we honestly can't keep up, and there's so much here. So Rob, why don't you kick us off?
1: First one is from Michael Kramer, a.k.a. Gold Dragon 71 He says, great episode, guys. Not much to say except on a few entries. Dr. Light, in reading Crisis on Infinite Earths, I have to wonder if she was meant to be a more capable supervillain to replace the wildly worthless Arthur Light. Of course, that (laughs) didn't come to be, and I actually took a liking to Dr. Light during her JLE days. I knew that her character was written much differently than she was originally, but she reminded me of a girl I liked in high school. Whoa! That sounds really cool. I would have been, that sounds very, very intriguing to me, Michael.
2: I think the character had the original version that came out of Crisis had a lot of potential, you know, as yeah. sort of the, the, the hero who's smarter than the rest of them and doesn't have the patience for it. You know, I, I, I think that's an interesting type that isn't explored too often. But, uh, yeah. you know, the version we got in Just League Europe had her merits, but I think I would have liked to have seen the uh, more hostile version personally.
1: Yeah. Uh, next up, we got a comment from Michael Bailey, everyone knows who he is from The Fortress of Bailey 2, views from the long box and many, many more. He says, Yay, new who's who who, a new who's who episode, always a treat. Regarding Big Barden, y'all blew my mind back when you first talked about Barda and revealed that she was based on Lady Kazan. I literally said, What? The grandmother from Delta Force and the mother from my big fat Greek wedding was in Playboy? I could never look at either of those movies the same way again. I never really got Barda as a character until reading the original Mr. Miracle comics, and suddenly I'm like, oh, she's a full figured badass woman. That is amazing. I've had a soft spot for her since then. I'd say it's a hard spot, Michael, but that's not for me to say.
2: Holy
1: crap, he went there. I mean, I was thinking it, but you went there. All right, so. Uh... I can't wait to say that joke. I wrote it a month ago. Oh, my God.
2: Uh, then he goes on to say, General Glory, I love – in all caps,
1: I love this entry.
2: Makes me laugh every time I read it. I also love the fact that his first appearance took place in a story where Guy Gardner and the old man are fighting over a comic book because it's the only place that he had his saying written down. Again, makes me laugh every single time. Thank you, Michael. You and I are some of the only supporters of General Glory out there, so I appreciate that. And he says, core the thing that disappoints me about – by the way, it's, uh, there was discussion too on, on how to pronounce it – Everyone says LexCorp, including myself, but really it should be LexCorp. You know, it's we say Corp like Marine Corps, but this is corporation. That's so true. It really should
1: be Corp. Yeah.
2: yeah, it should be LexCorp. Anyway, um, Michael says the thing that disappoints me about this LexCorp. Entry is that the X-ray effect hides one of my favorite Easter eggs of the post-crisis era. To the right of the Daily Planet building, hidden behind the X-ray thing, is the News Time building. And that building was drawn to look like the Los Angeles City Hall, which served as the Daily Planet in the exterior shots of the Adventures of Superman television series. Wow! I had no idea! That is super cool and ultra-referential, and also creepy that Michael knows the Metropolis geography well enough to know what should should be to the right and to the left. But uh, very, very fascinating. I didn't know that. Then he goes on to talk about Terra-Man, because Rob and I were not kind to Terra-Man, the post-crisis version, even remotely. He says, "Okay, calm down, guys. Get off your flying robotic high horse. That was meant as a joke. And just accept that they weren't trying to make the Bronze Age—they uh, weren't trying to make the Bronze Age version cool. The creators were just leaning into the ecological skid." This Earth Day was a huge thing in 1990, and the idea of a businessman that sees his company has polluted the Earth and is now trying to make amends for that is interesting and is sadly still relevant today. He's not the best revamped, but the issues he was in were very good and tried to make a point. Before you start saying how goofy fun the Bronze Age super villain, Superman supervillains were, admit to yourself that most of them were just cheap knockoffs of popular actors of the day. Ouch! And not
1: uh, I, I'm not, I'm nah, no, I don't, I disagree.
2: Zardoz, come on, or whatever the, the. Vartox, the, yeah. Vartox, which was Zardoz, I mean, come on. Yeah. He's right. Alright, uh, then we're from Doug Zawisha, author of The Hawkman Companion, and he does the Doom Patrol blog, My Greatest Adventure 80, and a whole bunch of other stuff. He says, uh, it would be neat to see the JLI members assembled as a fighting team. I, I think that's a bit of a joke, uh, because hmm. they don't really ever fight. And then he says, against Dr. Spectro and Rainbow Raider. So, I, I got a chuckle out of that. I think it was a joke, so I found it funny. Then we heard from, And I like Doug. So. Then we heard from Jeff R. And he says, you have the timeline a bit wrong on hell. Because remember we talked about the hell, uh, the, the denizens of hell or whatever they are called. He says the triumvirate were introduced in Sandman number three, but Lucifer wouldn't retire and kick off the season of Mist for about two years. It's those two years that the demon business happened. Meanwhile, over in Hellblazer, supposedly in the same continuity as Sandman, and the source of a lot of these people under the earlier writers, we got the first of the fallen who wasn't Lucifer and really couldn't be squared with the other books. Ooh, uh, it sort of fits with what I was saying earlier about how like, we had all these different types of books going on at the same time, but all in the same continuity and people are like, yeah,
1: who cares? Just have fun with it. So that works for me. I've <laughs> uh, got a comment from Damien Drouet Wender about how you say the Drouet part. Excuse me if I get that wrong. He says, uh, Hi guys, another great episode. I'll start by thanking you for my Frank Award. I'm presuming it's a compliment. Eh. What's my prize? (laughs) I'll gladly accept the loose leaf issue three, which remains the only issue of Who's Who that I don't own. I was a little worried about this issue because it's a Joe Staten cover, and I know you know I love his work. Thank God you were complimentary. Damien, I'm always going to be complimentary when it comes to Joe Staten pretty much.
2: I tell you what, Damien, because you threw the fishing line out there. You got it, buddy. Send me your address, and I will send you the loose leaf issue number three because, remember, I have a giant stack of who's who uh, that I got in Arizona of still sealed from here. So uh, go ahead and send it to me. You know, this is the second one that I've given out that's overseas. So you guys are killing me on the posters. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> and actually, I still need to mail the first one. So I've got Mike's address. It is all right next to my computer. It's going out soon. Anyway, uh, then Big Barda. Uh, Damien goes on to say this entry is almost perfect. I love Adam Hughes' version of the character. I recently read that Adam's first work for DC was in Mr. Miracle. It was a Mr. Miracle cover, and he was trying to convince Andy Helfer to let him take over that book. He describes being sad that he was given the Justice League America assignment instead. Weird. And his scot-free was hot, Damien says. Let's see. Then we go on. He talks about the Legion subs. He says, I love the way that Giffen refers to the subs as his bipolar group. When everyone wants them to be treated with reverence, he makes them buffoons. Then when everyone has accepted the ridiculousness, he makes them an effective fighting team. The worst thing about this entry is that Ty Templeton was working with Michael Yuri on a proposal for an ongoing subs book that he was going to write and draw, which fell apart when Yuri left DC. The promise of so much more that never happened. Ouch. I kind of wish I never knew that now because, like, I would have loved to
1: see that book. Templeton drawing the subs. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would have been a bull. I would have bought that Legion book.
2: Oh yeah. So uh, he goes on to talk about Madman. He says you mentioned villains being taken on by Hawk and Dove, but what you missed was that this was because because all right. So I had mentioned how Hawk and Dove used to annex a lot of characters and how they annexed the Madman. He says that uh, this was actually part of a crossover with the Creeper that came out of a reader competition to suggest a guest star. The whole idea was to use as many Steve Ditko characters as possible and to shoehorn in as many jokes about Madmen in Washington as the Keesles could manage. Look at that. That's pretty cool, actually. It says, Greg Goulier, uh, Goulier the artist we talked about, was uh, slightly unfairly overlooked, obviously being the guy who takes over from Rob Liefeld is a poison chalice. <laughs> I like that. Then he goes on to say about Two-Face. He goes, my first Batman comic starred Two-Face, and even though it was written by um, Max Allen Collins, I, I still feel quite a lot of warmth towards the character. That The annual that this entry is based on remains a favorite story of mine, but I have yet to um, – okay, hold on. Let me just back up. When we talked about the Two-Face entry, we talked about how – in that entry, they talked about how uh, Harvey Dent – had a lot of questionable actions before he even became Two-Faced and I said I felt like that sort of took away from the character and the, the, the sort of split nature of them but here's where he's addressing that he goes so um let's so see it. it's a favorite story but I have to disagree that it makes him a villain from the start he is presented as advocating an eye for an eye justice along the lines of the kind of person you'd see on a TV discussion of the death penalty not as an outright villain I disagree with him but I don't think he's presented as evil even when he gives into the darkness at the end of the story I think it's a Shown as a broken Harvey rather than a necessary evolution. So, all right, fair enough to hear the other side because I have not read that annual, or at least I haven't in many, many years. So that's very, very
1: fair. I've right, got a comment from Chris Lewis, and he says, "Boom tube, huh? They drop you within a mile radius of your destination. Darkside is still about fifteen to twenty minutes walk away." <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, I don't have to outrun you, Rob. I just have to outrun Darkseid. <laughs>
1: That's right.
2: <laughs> uh, then we heard from Ryan Daly from the Firewater Podcast Network shows like Cheerscast, Batman Nightcast, and many more. Uh, and he says, Lord, that big BARTA page by Adam Hughes is stunning. What leaves me equally shocked, though, is the fact that I've never seen this image before. How is it not the first entry in every image search for BARTA on the World Wide Web? Get your act
1: together, Internet. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, we got a comment from Matt Sorois and he says, a great episode. It's Mr. Miracle here, there, and everywhere. What do, you, <laughs> what do you expect from the greatest escape artist in the universe? No one entry can hold him. I love Rob's evaluation of the Dr. Spectro entry. You have to praise an artist who gives it everything he's got regardless of who or what he is drawing. There are no small characters, only small artists. <laughs> Thank
2: you, Matt. Good way to put it. They will heard from Doug Van Diver, and he writes in about the boom tubes. He says, I'm sure the reference to the, quote, no more than a mile, meaning uh, how far the boom tube walk was, allows for there to be scenes in certain comics where the interior is drawn to be noticeably lengthier. Didn't artists ever draw the big evil Kirby tech ships or the whiz wagons making non-trivial looking trips through them? Not everyone is walking is my point, so a boom tomb could be – could compare to an on-ramp or an off-ramp if the story needs it, I guess. (laughs) That's a very good uh, no-prize version. Doug, I'll
1: buy that. Yeah, that works. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary and the Legion of uh, Superbloggers says, Great episode. Although there was an awful lot of hawk and dove bashing in this episode. I don't think there was enough. A shame you guys don't love them as much as they deserve to be loved. (laughs) It's so sweet,
2: Ange. I take the position of I want to love them more, but they got to give me more. So I uh, I like them in the Titans TV series, but, yeah, not not that series. Li- again, I, there's so much, like, on the cusp of me loving in, that, uh, in the comic series, but it's just not there. <clears throat> All right. Uh, forgive me, folks. I think my voice is going uh, as we're getting through this feedback. There's so much of it. All right. Uh, up next is Dr. Light 2, and uh, he gives quotes from Crisis here. You turn in battle, girl, a fatal mistake. Way to go, Dr. Light. Uh, I have come full circle with the death of Supergirl in Crisis. It is clearly the image of the crisis. She died to save the universe and her cousin. And, of course, she has come back and is more popular than ever. Fair enough. And he says, as for Dr. Light, I never blamed her for Kara's death. She was so struck with by Kara's sacrifice that she changed herself. If you read her comments in Crisis Number 7, you see how that edgy anger uh, of Dr. Light is gone. Huh. I never noticed that, so I'll have to check that out next time I read Crisis. It goes on to say, Guardians of the Universe, I will remind you of my adolescent reaction to their story in Millennium when they left the universe to hang out with the Xamarons. And I quote, great, the short old prune guys get to paradise with the Glamazons. Meanwhile, no girl will notice me. <laughs> Teenage Anne uh, cracks me up it says on Guy Gardner, because I had talked about how Guy Gardner was sort of a unique type of character where he's he 's brash he 's unpleasant he's he 's you know sexist he 's a jerk but he 's a hero and he 's doing the right thing and he 's loyal so I said you know I thought that was an interesting Archetype for comics at that time. I couldn't think of anyone else. And he comes back and says, maybe U.S. Agent is one of those. You know, a good guy who's a jerk. And he says, I think U.S. Agent was basically the Marvel version of Guy Gardner. And I think that's very fair. Uh, I would agree with that. But I do think Guy's Agent came pretty late compared to Guy Gardner. I mean, Guy Gardner was a jerk by what eighty-seven, and I don't think U.S. Agent was really in play till what, like the maybe early nineties
1: or so. I so, think. Uh, May I think so? Maybe. Yeah, I can't
2: remember exactly when. I mean, I'm. I'm I'm thinking force works in my
1: brain, but I, I knew he was around before that. All right. Uh, he also mentions the prankster. He says, love this version. I agree that it is weird that he is a Superman villain, especially given that there is also the Toy Man. He should be an Adam villain. I didn't hmm. – no, I don't understand that. Who – is he talking about the prankster being an Adam villain or the Toy Man being an Adam villain? Toy Man I could see it, but pranks – I don't get the connection between prankster and Adam. Well, I mean, you know, I think
2: given the nature of the, the – the, the, well, you know, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I, I'm rationalizing either one, but because uh, I could see the Adam fighting these types of characters, but yeah, I don't know. Well, let us know, Ange,
1: which one you were thinking of. Okay. Uh, we got a comment from Joe X and regarding the L period, E period, or whatever. Uh, Dear Penthouse Forum slash Rob, I never thought I would be writing a letter like this, but. <laughs> what? What is that even in reference to? I don't exactly know. I just liked it, though. <laughs>
2: Uh, maybe you said something positive about the Legion. Maybe that's what it was. Okay. That doesn't sound like me. Well, but acronym Legion. I mean, there's some good stuff. You know, very <laughs> Kitten's good. Anyway, uh, he talks about Mr. Miracle the third. He goes, I liked Shiloh Norman better as the warden of a supervillain prison as a nod to Kingdom Come. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, there was a supervillain prison, I think called the slab in Antarctica or something like that. And Shiloh was the warden there. And yeah, clearly in hindsight, that is a nod to Mr. Miracle being the warden in uh, Kingdom Come. Makes perfect sense. This is, Zoom's squid piece is great as always. And he says the squid is actually a riff on the spirit villain, the octopus.
1: That makes total sense. <laughs> I, I didn't I, know I, that, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes total And now that, he's, now that he points it out, I was like, yeah, that's totally what it is. So good uh, good, good, call on you there, Joe. That's, that makes, that, that's, I was like, I can't believe I missed that. Uh, <laughs> we got a comment from Mike uh, Dynas. Uh, or he says, he says or, see, Mike Dynas, he says, kind of sounds like Dynasty without the T-Y. Thank you, Mike. That's a uh,
2: note just for you in enunciation, you fool. That's not supposed to be on the oh air. No,
1: I'm just saying it, it anyway. Just in All right.
2: Once in a while, I make the extra effort to say y'all's folks' names right.
1: (laughs) Not very often. (laughs) He says, regarding Rainbow Raider, are they morts? Of course. Am I still going to find their first appearance issues? Absolutely. Did you mention the Wanderers? I must have blacked out for that. I will not seek out those issues. I would rather hear an Omega Men Who's Who podcast than hear more about the Wanderers. Speaking of house ads, I remember seeing the Wanderers house ad proclaiming, We're born to solve the final mystery. Who killed them? And I hated it every time I saw it. I miss those Hostess ads. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Didn't
2: you do a, an April Fool's Day uh, fake commercial where it was like going to be the the up, uh, like up with up forever with, people? Yeah, up with for, oh up with forever people. Okay, it wasn't the uh, it wasn't the Omega Men then. Okay, no, All right. no it's up with forever
1: people.
2: Yeah, maybe, maybe next year you'll do that one.
1: All right,
2: <laughs> or this year I guess because it's now 2020. Happy New Year, by the way. This is great. Oh my God, we're in the future. We are because we're actually recording this in December. <laughs> all right. Then we heard from Nathan Archer, my buddy, who's a phenomenal cartoonist and also a member of my role-playing group. Uh, we, I had called him out last time because I was trying to remember uh, a term because we were talking about Roy G. Bivolo. And I was saying when you're when you're born with a certain name and you're destined to follow that as a supervillain. I couldn't remember it And I said, right, Nathan says it all the time. It's nominative – I can't say this. Nominative determinism. <laughs> so that was the phrase I could, and apparently I still can't say it. Anyway, and he says it's the phenomenon where you gravitate towards a job that fits your name. And he says I think Jay and Miles of Explain the X Men fame use destiny instead of determinism, which I think makes more sense for the comics. Fortunately, that does. I still got to get past the n- nom- nominative. I can't say that stupid word anyway. And then Nathan Archer goes on to say, in any case, I'm thinking of picking up a bow and arrow now, which fits very well with his name. Very clever.
1: <laughs> Good going and, work, uh, working backwards, my name should be Porty Porison. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh.
2: Now we're here from Tom Panarese from the Pop Culture Affidavit, Required Reading with Stella, and much more. Tom says, uh, Red Star's entry here coincides. Because I talked about Red Star, how much I love that entry, and you whined and whined. Anyway, because Red Star's entry here coincides with his return to the New Titans, and he would ha- play a huge role in a three part story about a year and a half later in New Titans from 94 to 96. It deals with a plot to use Cyborg as a means to kill Boris Yeltsin. Because remember, I talked about how the fall of the wall and the so- Soviet Union was about to happen. Or not the wall, but the fall of the Soviet Union was was about to happen and he goes goes on anyway this plot was to kill Boris Yeltsin and put the Soviets back in power it was drawn by Phil Jimenez and written by Louise Simonson who signed my copy but said she honestly didn't remember writing those issues (laughs) well Weezy's written a lot of comics fair enough
1: yeah that can happen uh, we got a comment from Chris Franklin, our fellow network uh, all-star. He does JLUCast, uh, JLU cast, Superman Movie Minute, which has just wrapped up and more. He says, man, it has been a long time since you guys did one of these, hasn't it? Not to get all dag on you, but come on, fellas. Let's pick up the pace, okay? What's that? Hey, Ryan and I did a whole season of Nightcast lately. Give us a break. Oh, anything, we were picking on about Nightcast. Uh, anything that brings Chris Franklin and Dag together is dangerous, so we really need to do – more of these because I just I can't stand the idea of those two, you know, teaming up. That's like a, the, that's like when Luthor and Joker teamed up to fight Superman and Batman. I just I just can't live with that.
2: Well, to be fair, people at home are going, who is DAG? So, understand David that. David Gutierrez, to... yes. Right, exactly. So, it's sort of our version of a curse word. DAG is, uh, what we <laughs> use for, 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 Gutierrez, so. Alright, then we, um, Mr. Miracle. He says, see, Jim Aparo still had it. DC should have let the man ink himself always. Whenever he got the chance in the later years, like here and in Legends of the Dark Knight Annual number one, he knocked it out of the park. It was tons better than pairing him with a heavy-handed Mike DiCarlo and a million times better than putting Bill Sinkovich <laughs> That's what you're right. I think it's in cabbage, but it's anyway, cabbage, yeah. Yeah, over his pencils, uh, and that's uh, like mixing peanut butter and motor oil. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Too funny, Chris. And he says the squid. Zoom you can already did it again, but of course he did. Just a fantastic piece, and not taking anything away from the piece, but Zoom definitely lifted that great logo from the squid's cover appearance in Batman 357. Yeah, because we were complimenting the logo, and I, I was thinking maybe Zoom designed it, but yeah, I- I thank you for pointing out that that's an original logo, and of course Zoom used it because he's brilliant. So. Then on Star Fire. We had talked about um, whether – because Diablo Frank had said that Starfire was coded as Latino, and you and I were like, really? I never picked up on that. And so Chris says, "But George Perez has said that it began to develop more individuality in each of the Titans. He eventually based Corey's features on a woman of his own Puerto Rican heritage. So yes, she does read as Latino to me and has for a long time, uh, for as long as I can remember.
1: All right. Very interesting. Uh, And finally, he says Marvin, uh, as in Marvin of the Super Friends. Yes, I hate him. With every fiber of my being, he's the Jar Jar Binks of the DCU. Thankfully, he has less merchandise. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. I'm going to invite Chris on an episode of For All Mankind that has Marvin in it just to kind of, you know, see if he'll change his mind maybe. Wow, that's brutal. Yeah. Well, now that we're done, Superman Movie Minute, he's got the time. Uh, so uh, we got a comment from <laughs> David Capoon. He says, um, I-, I am probably one of your younger listeners. I am currently an undergrad student, and mm. I've never actually owned an issue of any Who's Who series. However, my introduction to the DC Universe Encyclopedia, I just got the first edition from my seventh birthday and read it until the cover fell off. Wow. When the se- Wow. When the second edition came out, I did the exact same thing and made a new cover out of duct tape and cardboard. <laughs> those books threw me right into the deep end of the dcu and gave me a huge appreciation for a ton of virtually unknown characters that i find fascinating to this day that book also apparently lifted a ton from these loose leaf entries as well as from the originals from what i can tell this podcast has been pretty much the only one i have ever heard discuss characters like the heckler so it's pretty all right on my book also, this was my first FNW Network show and in the three years since I've started listening I've been hooked. So thanks Rob Shag and the whole wonderful community that has really brought my comics knowledge up a few notches. Thank you, David. That's wonderful. Wow. That was awesome, man. That's fantastic. Well, why don't you write us in again? Tell us some
2: of your favorite entries like we've described or some of the ones you're interested in, and I, I love hearing your history on that. That's wonderful. So, cool. Very and, cool. you know, from what you've seen as a newbie, you know, do you feel a more affinity to the um, – Loose leaf entries you've seen you know, uh, digitally online, or maybe the uh, original stuff. I mean, I'd be curious to hear your opinion as someone who's coming to this fresh. So, all right, thank you, David. Then we heard from our buddy Ward Hill Terry, and he goes on about Crimson Fox because Lord knows I went on about Crimson Fox more than enough last episode. I don't know what happened to me, but I wouldn't shut up. Uh, he goes on. Oh to yeah, say, that's all a
1: right. really unusual turn of events.
2: I never liked you. Anyway, uh, Ward Hill Terry goes on to say, this is my – this is the only opportunity I'll have for this rant. I read the Starman <laughs> story with her years after it was published because uh, remember I mentioned there was a Starman story where like all these members of the Justice League got killed. And uh, he says, uh, I had not seen the character previously. I had seen Blue Devil in the original Amazing Man many times. I had already developed a strong dislike for superhero stories of slaughtered superheroes. Yes, I understand that this is a way to show how tough and ruthless the villain of the piece is, but I still do not like it. After my initial dislike of this particular um Starman, Mist, Crimson Fox, Blue Devil, Amazing Man story, I figured out a way around it. The story is told by the Mist, and as far as I'm concerned, the Mist is an unreliable narrator. She told the story to her baby, but there was no corroborating sources. So in my head canon, a phrase I learned on the Firewater Podcast Network, the events as described by the Mist never happened. Blue Devil wasn't killed. Amazing Man wasn't killed, and Crimson Fox uh, survived to be a French-language comic by Mobius. <laughs> I love that word, Terry Thank you so much.
1: Uh, we got a comment from the aforementioned David a. Gutierrez. Uh, he says, I appreciate that you guys do the show given the time it demands. I love that you guys do this for us and for free, except that I'm a patron, so I demand satisfaction.
2: <laughs> we do it all for you, David. And we know that uh, you have something you need to, you know, you need something to occupy your time while you're uh,
1: working at the Katana Banana. We understand. Yes. Uh, he, re- he mentions regarding the squid entry. He says, Zoom knocks it out again. How does he do it? I, you know, we don't know. We have not been able to figure that out. And we've been working with the man for several years and uh we there's another one another list coming up very shortly.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. She says Big Barda looks awesome. I say that Lenny Kazan was more vixen build than big boned in her prime, or as the kids say now, thick. Anyway, Barda is awesome. Yes, uh, that, absolutely correct, Liz. And that was just my own uh, misstep in, in my wording. I'm I'm not so smart with the words, without a doubt. So, Liz goes on to say, Mister Miracle was so cool, and I had his toys as a kid. He was just so cool, and I think everyone had him. No, no, Liz. I did not have him, and I'm still bitter. But anyway, uh, Liz goes on to say, I liked him uh, a bit in the comics, though he was my favorite. Uh, My favorite was in Another Nail, where he becomes a spirit in the green lantern ring that Barta uses. Wow! I've read The Nail, but I don't think I've ever read Another Nail. I don't think, because I don't remember that. That sounds really, really cool. Then he goes on to talk about Red Star. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Liz goes on to talk about Red Star. And Liz says, uh, Red Star, yet uh, he shouldn't be built like that. Because Rob was talking about, remember the height and weight? It was really off for Red Star, because Red Star is built was like a brick. And yet the height and weight was really skinny. And Liz says that for Red Star, uh, he shouldn't be built like that. The height and weight of that is what they give Spider-Man in Ohatmu. So that wouldn't work. That is a very good observation. I didn't even think about that comparison. Yeah, if, if, if Red Star had Spider-Man... Spider-Man's build. That's not going to (laughs) fly. Thank you, Liz. Appreciate that. Then we heard from Diablo Frank from the Roll Spine Podcast Network. And Frank has a new podcast, Rob. It is the Marvel Handbook Podcast, and it's about Ohatmu. So it's sort of like his warp, twisted, demented version of the Who's Who podcast for Ohatmu. It's uh, interesting. He's got lots of different guest stars and uh, sometimes he uses lost audio that was recorded years ago. So check
1: that out. (laughs) Uh,
2: Anyway, Frank says, when I interviewed Mark Wade, he talked about how he easily typed out reams and reams of text from memory about myriad DC properties while working on the Loose Leaf Who's Who, which makes the half-filled Boom Tube page an unintended critique. The Fourth World is certainly one area of the DCU that he's never seemed to linger on. And given that it was something of an intrusion of marvel content and talent making the end of dc silver uh, marking the end of dc silver age i wonder if there's an unreported sort of alex rossian fanboy hiccup here all of that is to say that I got more mileage out of the idle speculation that I would have in actually talking about the BoomTube entry. So I mentioned that earlier. When you look at the New God entries that are written by Mark Wade, there isn't a lot of text, and we have commented on that many times. I never put it together, though, that maybe it has to do with sort of a dislike Mark Wade might have, I suppose, for the New Gods characters. I mean, I doubt he genuinely dislikes them, but I don't remember him ever writing a New Gods book.
1: So that's hmm, interesting. Maybe maybe just didn't have a lot of enthusiasm for the for the job.
2: Could be. I also I remember when we did the original Who's Who. All the Batman the Outsiders entries, even though they were written by Mark W. Barr, the text was always super short. So maybe it's just a stylistic choice. Mm -hmm. Um, Then he goes on to say – Frank goes on to say about Crimson Fox, always read to me exactly as advertised here. An NPC generated to check off some obligatory boxes in service to an assigned premise rather than a muse. Can we talk about how she doesn't look anything like a fox and how she's just another one of the seemingly endless variations on clawed cat ladies that seem to be a requisite addition to superhero teams of the late Bronze and Chromium ages? That's a fair thing. That is fair. I will say, though, Frank was really grumpy when he wrote his uh,
1: all these posts this time. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. What a – again, another amazing turn of events. More so than usual. In terms of his list of favorites to least favorite uh, J- JLA supporting staff members, he writes Dale Gunn, Oberon, Max Lord, Sue Dibney, Wendy, Catherine Colbert, the Yaz, Snapper Carr, and Marvin. I'm sorry. Putting Marvin below Snapper Carr is ridiculous. <laughs> All right.
2: Then it goes on to say, you have to give credit where it's due. It was smart to relaunch the Green Lantern series as a quasi-team book stealth anthology rotating three different lead Green Lanterns instead of arguing for uh, chopping the baby into halves, especially when it came time for a spin-off franchise. Mosaic was brilliant at times, both in story and art, easily outshining its sibling titles. With Pat Broderick's uh, exiting, Hal Jordan's book really suffered from the Hal Jordan-ness of Mark Bright. A guy Gardner seemed to be produced through gritted teeth by an unenthused scripter and an artist who really should have been moved on to Scooby Doo years earlier than he did. In retrospect, th- He's not wrong about any of these points. actually. Um, the writer, uh, in retrospect, the writer clearly needed to be dropping titles from his workload rather than adding them, and cashing all of those checks expedited his burnout and dismissal from the field. So he's not wrong. Uh, the Green Lantern era started off explosively. I mean, they had numerous books. I mean, it, Jeff Johns' explosive era wasn't the first time Green Lantern exploded. I mean, we had Green Lantern, we had Mosaic, we had Guy Gardner, uh, we had Green Lantern Quarterly, we had all these books out there, and yeah, they very quickly soured almost all of them, and a lot of it had to do with the writer who burned out and uh, left
1: the industry and we're not going to talk about that writer uh, anymore because he's a bad, bad, bad person. Uh, He says, uh, regarding point R... He says, uh, <laughs> "I didn't get Terra Man as a kid, but at least his ridiculousness stood out in a big Vartox kind of way." Hey, there's Vartox again. Truth is, Battle Armor Al Gore makes for an inconvenient revamp. Oh my gosh! And if I ever made a Superman movie, the villain would totes be Lee Van Cleef riding Pegasus. I have it all planned out in my mind. I love that. I, that is such a great idea of Lee Van Cleef as Terra Man. I that I like to think that that exists in a parallel universe, and that's the same parallel universe that uh, Christopher Lee and Caroline. And Rao played Ray Shagul and Talia, uh, so I love that idea, Frank. I, I would have killed to see Lee Van Cleef as as Terra Man.
2: Well, for the rest of uh, Frank's uh, diatribe, check out our website; it's all out there, folks. I'll move on to Mark uh, to Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. I, you know, I went on and on about Big Barter. I've mentioned it again today about Big Bart's affiliation, not having JLI. And Martin says, affiliation doesn't mean membership. So, yes, given she was with him a lot, Big Barta should have been linked to JLI in the entry. Thank you, Martin. I appreciate your support. (laughs) Then he says, uh, Rob is right. Okay. I just complimented Martin. Now he's gone off crazy. Anyway. Keep going. Keep uh, going. He says, Rob is right. The best entry of the issue is Prankster. It's just perfect. A brilliant idea, superbly executed, and I always assumed he was Jimmy Olsen's fat uncle. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: crazy. I guess the bow tie, maybe I don't know. <laughs> he says, uh, "Oh, and I have another great new podcast, podcast idea for the most obsessed Rob. He goes back through every entry in every version of Who's Who and corrects the height, weight details according to his artistic eye." You're welcome. Uh, and then Max Traver follows up with 1010 would listen smiley face. Thanks, guys. I am going to start that show this year in 2020. It is going to be called Weight Watchers. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> it's even got who's even got WW. It's like who's oh, in Weight Watchers? <laughs> don't feed the beast, guys. Don't
2: feed the beast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Then we heard from our buddy Cisco from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as Zero Hour Strikes, Ohatmo or Not, and many others. He writes Crimson Fox, this is an open invitation to ask any of the <laughs> O. Oh, Half of the network that is French-speaking for help on pronouncing French words. Now, by the way, I'm about to try this, folks. He did not give me a phonetic pronunciation even though he, he belittled me just then, so I'm going to do my best. Uh, he's uh, La Renard Rousse I don't know. He uh, goes, that last word, which means red-haired or ginger, is not pronounced like the last name of the famous MMA fighter-turned-actress-turned-wrestler. I have no idea what, who any of that is. Uh, he just says it's simply Roos R-O-O-S-S. A lot of the silent E's in the French language. I'll tell you what, again, Siskoid, if you're going to berate me next time, give me a true phonetic uh, pronunciation, please. Doesn't mean I'm going to get it right, but anyway. He uh, says it's about madman. What's always amusing to me is that they first appeared in Charlton's Blue Beetle number 3. I first read the story in Modern Comics reprint of Blue Beetle number three, and then they made their first DCU appearance in DC's Blue Beetle number three. So the first appearance here doesn't really need to say the uh, second series bit because that isn't necessarily uh, wrong without it. Good point. Good point. Just going. Then we heard from the uh, aforementioned Max Driver. He writes, <laughs> quote, Who's Who, the definitive podcast that kept Max Driver out of prison, end quote, <laughs> returns, and at just in time. He says, I discovered this network in the show when I lived under some really noisy upstairs neighbors. It helped. You know, I, I got to meet Max at the Boston Comic Con, uh, and we chatted quite a bit, and he told me the whole longer version of the story, and it is hilarious about how these upstairs neighbors were driving him mad to the point where he wanted to, Inflict bodily harm on them, and so he would pop his earbuds in and listen to the Who's Who podcast, and that was what kept him sane.
1: Performing so. <laughs> a public service,
2: we are. Uh, and then Max goes on to say, Big Barda and Scott Free are perhaps tied for my favorite couple in the DCU, alongside Ralph and Sue
1: Dibney. Oh, I could totally see that, Max. That's really nice. Uh, yeah, he says, uh, and the, and then I'm sorry, we move on to uh, Gothel's mansion. Who says, okay, okay, going B movie for a minute, but this will dovetail back into Who's Who. I think that the Brink and Dave Stevens relationships was one of those deals where they dated for five years and stayed married for five minutes. Both of them admit their tempestuous relationship served as a template for Cliff and Betty's rocky relationship in The Rocketeer. Mm. Brink, Brink said in interviews that she would read The Rocketeer and say, I remember when we had that argument. That's amazing. Marco from Hollywood and the Rocketeer was based on photographer Ken Marcus, who had a relationship with Brink after and maybe during the marriage. Anyway, I don't think Brink has ever done an interview where she didn't complain that Dave always drew her body and stuck someone else's head on it. The Rocketeer collection that I have has the photo of Brink that Dave used for the famous shocked Betty with hand bra drawing. Maybe Marcus wooed Brink by saying, hey, when I do image of you, I won't superimpose someone else's head over it. Strangely, after the divorce, Brink continued to model for Dave. He drew her face for a Twisted Tales cover, which wound up being reused as the box art for her movie, Dark Romances, and the comic shows up in the movie. Wow. I've got a little more on this, too. He says, Okay, back to Who's Who. If you look at Dave
2: Stevens' uh, Catwoman entry, the Selina image doesn't look anything like Brink. But if you look at the Catwoman main image, the eyes, the shape of the nose, the pouty lips all look like Brink. That is definitely Brink's flawless figure. Okay, sorry for so much, Brink. I've, he, I used to be a fan, but I'm mainly a Laura Gemser man. Oh, and there it is, folks. There it is. I knew it was coming. Uh, Brink was gorgeous, but she's no Laura. Can I tell you? I have a fondness for skinny. Or can I tell? you Can you tell? I have a fondness for skinny, long-haired brunettes. Laura is still the queen. Although Laura and Brink were both in Emmanuel movies, Laura in two and Brink in four, I wouldn't have been adverse to seeing them in a movie together. I knew we were going to get to the Laura Gemser discussion somewhere.
1: 20, I'm going to start the show this year at some point, 2020, it's coming.
2: Great! I'm so excited that we're going to have softcore porn in the network. That's great. <laughs> All right, then we hear from our buddy Tim Price. He says, "Ah, uh, good memory, Shag. It was me that tweeted about the General Glory comics appearing in Huntress number 15 during my read through of the 1989 to 1990 series. The issue came out the same month as Justice League America number 39 months before General Glory storyline in Justice League America number 46." That was a crazy surprise find. Yeah, it's awesome. And again, I put it down to the editor Andy Helfer
1: uh, playing a part in that. Tim continues. Doctor Spectre certainly has come a long way. First, a villain in the Squadron Sinister, then a hero of sorts in the Squadron Supreme, then a woman received by the power. Then a woman received the Power Prism. Then what's that? Doctor Spectrum. Oh, sorry. Uh, my addiction, to, my addiction to digital comic subscriptions, led me to read the '80s Captain Atom series with this Doctor Spectro. Boy, that costume gonna burn out some retinas, but it is a beautiful image. Broderick drew the hell out of it. Yes, he did. Speaking of Tim's
2: uh, addiction to comic book uh, digital subscriptions, uh, last time I checked, he was reading Firestorm. Woohoo! All right.
1: I got a comment from Jawsome1, and he says, I'm not as ver- – <laughs> <laughs> I still love his <laughs> It's name. a great name. I'm not as verbose as most of your commentators. Well, when frag in there, how could you be? Uh, but n- know that I do get quite a lot of enjoyment from you two. Thank you for going through the theme song for me. I can now sing along, so I guess you guys owe me my wife and my <laughs> – I guess you guys owe my wife an apology. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's
2: fair. I can buy into that. That's All right. Cool from Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock Toy Box. He says, I was surprised to hear a reasonably complete retelling of Starman number 38 featuring the deaths of Crimson Fox, Amazing Man, and Blue Devil without hearing Shag mention the appearance of Firestorm. Did I miss it? Firestorm was notable for surviving the event, mostly by being lured away from the main action, admittedly. But it was also a fairly rare appearance for the character at that point in time, shortly after his return with Ronnie Raymond flying solo in Extreme Justice. Say what you will about that series, but it gave us Firestorm back. Then he goes on to talk about Shadowstorm as well. You know, good point, Mark. I totally left out fires from there. I, I- it wasn't necessarily relevant to the conversation. Uh, I certainly, of course, am aware Firestorm was in that. But no, you, you're very fair in calling me out. I should take every opportunity I can to promote the character. So that's very fair. Uh, let's see. Uh, then we heard from Symbol Pending, who does a Power Girl blog of the same name, and they wrote, so when I was a little Symbol, I wasn't into American <laughs> comics. But I do remember two comics that I guess had an influence on my taste and listening options. The first was JLI, and Dr. Light was probably one of my favorites in the first issues. She was just properly Really grumpy and whilst I, don't follow, I, I didn't follow her for long, I still have a soft spot for them. I'm sorry, I think they meant the JLI. Anyway, then they say the second was an issue of Superman with Barda. Yep, the one. Despite it hasn't scarred me too much, I now consider her one of my favorites, second to Power Girl, obviously. If anyone has read Bombshells, I think Roller Derby Barda has to be one of my favorite costumes of hers next to the original Kirby uh, outfit. So I uh, I got to check out that Roller Derby Barda. I bet that's super cool. I bet that would look great. Yeah, I bet it would. All right, folks, it is now time for Zoom's Who. Zoom, you can always addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe. Now, remember, you can go out to Redbubble and look for Professor Zoom and pick up his Zoom's Who mug there. So, Rob, why don't you tell us about your favorite supervillain of all time?
1: I can't believe we haven't gotten to this one yet. I'm sort
2: of shocked. Uh, According to Zoom, we have not and he has an eidetic memory, so i got to trust him. And, you know, even if we have done it before, who cares? Let's do it again.
1: Yeah, it is the human flying fish, uh, one of the great Aquaman villains and sure to be the main villain in Aquaman 2 coming out in 2023 or whatever. Uh, Yeah, this one is drawn, this (laughs) listing, and you'll see it on the website, uh, on the gallery page. It is drawn entirely by Zoom Yukonori. Uh, Human flying fish first appeared in Adventure Comics number 272. He uh, was he was basically an Olympic swimmer, and this. Dr. Krill guy decides to sort of experiment on him, give him this costume where he can become, like I said, like I said a human flying fish. He is one of – straight up, one of the most ridiculous superhero <laughs> – supervillains ever in history. The costume is ridiculous. He's in this yellow – Although tun- Zoom makes it look pretty good. Zoom makes it look – he actually makes him look pretty cool. He's in this yellow tunic with this red uh, – excuse me – a yellow skull cap, uh, orange wings, purple boots, and then for some reason like that, those Captain America stripes on his midsection. Um, you know, purple I, and white. Yeah, I mean, laugh if you want, but ba- he is B- Aquaman's first real super supervillain for the most part. Uh, I mean, there was some other characters that had somewhat scientific powers. There was an Electric Man character that, that he fought. But this was really the first costumed superhero. I mean, you guess if you want to count Blackjack, but he was really more just like a pirate. This was really the first guy. Now, Zoom's listing here only gets into his first appearance, which was Adventure Comics, as I said, 272. Um... Uh, the human flying fish did not appear again for, for something like uh, 15 more years until E. Nelson Bergwell – With good reason. Yeah, with good reason. Until E. Nelson Bergwell dug him up for Super Friends number 1, which, of course, I just covered over in For All Mankind. So uh, Zoom just talks – Rob, you keep promoting your own podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, you go. Um, so Zoom talks about, talks about him here. The listing is great. What I find very funny is uh, we see this close-up of the human flying fish. The guy's name is uh, Victor Bragg. We see Bragg without his mask. We see him flying out of the water and being chased by Aquaman. And then we see Dr. Krill. Uh, on the left hand side of the page. And if for those of you who have read that story, Adventure Comics number 272, as drawn by Ramona Freyden, that really does not look like the krill that uh-huh. you see in the story. I had a suspicion. He looks kind of like Zoom Yukonori, yes, I have he does. to say. So Zoom inserted himself into this listing. He's a perfect- mad
2: scientist. As
1: the mad scientist, which is perfectly fine. Zoom's a very handsome man. So, I mean, it's, it's just a tremendous listing. Um, I actually, no joke, would have thought that Human Flying Fish kind of earned a listing in... Um, who's who proper? The original, because I mean, yes, he only really had a couple appearances to that point, but he was in Super Friends numbers one and two. That was kind of a big deal, and he did appear in a um, a Super Friends children's book called uh, Revenge of the Super Foes, which Sean Myers and I covered on an episode of Fire and Water, I think last year. So I mean, mm-hmm. you know, for as obscure he as he was, he did appear in like outside the comic books. I mean, you know, not a lot of villains he- managed to do that. He appeared
2: more times than some of the other characters that were in the main, uh, the, the first iteration of Who's Who.
1: Yeah. So, and then later on, he was brought back for Aquaman Sword of Atlantis, and they used him there and stuff like that. They brought, like,. <laughs> that. Really? Yeah, Kirby's yeah. They used him. him yep, back. Yep, 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 yep. No, not uh-huh. Kirk And, um,. Oh, shoot. Oh, the Tad Williams guy? Williams, uh, yeah, when he took over the book, they brought him back. Oh, so, I mean, wow. he's, he's been used. But, uh, but yeah, it's it's an amazing listing. Zoom, of course, just crushes it as he always does. It's, it's beautiful. And I'm very – I personally touched that he would include an Aquaman villain in, in his uh, Zoom's Who book.
2: And, and remember, folks, these Zoom's Who ones are done in the classic style with the yellow dots and the surprint and uh, the separation of the art and text. So, yeah, it's, it's a stunning piece. It's absolutely beautiful. And yeah. this is the first and only iteration of Humifying Fish where the character looks kind of cool. I mean, again, it's it's a bonkers costume, but the art is so interesting and dynamic that it's like, okay, yeah, maybe, okay. Sort of like a signal man drawn by somebody cool or something.
1: And also, like, on the cover, we see the human flying fish being chased after the Golden Age Aquaman, which, again, a nice touch.
2: Oh, is that a, oh, is that let me see. Oh, yeah, yeah, Okay, there we go.
1: I see that. Very cool.
2: All right, folks, uh, that is going to do it. So right now we're going to take a moment to thank all of the folks that helped promote the Who's Who podcast on their social media. Timelines, whether it be Facebook or Twitter. And again, it's, it, it's a long list of names. I realize that, folks. But we want to recognize everyone who helps promote the show. And you can be on this list, too. All you got to do is hit retweet on one of the tweets about the Who's Who podcast. Or um, you, if you want to promote it yourself, you can just tag us and make sure we see it. Uh, or go on to Facebook. And hit share. So, all right, going to run through the names real quick here. Our thanks to Al Girding, Between the Pages, Billy Delicious, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Leiden, Chuck Rodriguez, Cluck Trent, Coffee and Comics, Dale Russell, David Ace Gutierrez, David Capoon, Doctor Ange, Doctor Pop Culture, Bowling Green State University, Ed Moore, Fan Film Fridays Podcast, Green Lantern HG, Into the
1: Weird, Jay Jones Goldstein. Jack Roca, Jose Rivera, Connell, Lizanne Oswald, Mark Baker Wright, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Michael Kramer, Mike Dinus, Nicholas Alhelm, Nicholas Alhelm, sorry, Oddly, God of Snacks, Paul Kien, <laughs> Pop Culture Affidavit, Retro Cabal, Russ Bailey, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Ciscoid, Tim Price, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Arboro, and Zeb Oswald. All right. Now, remember, folks, where do they go, Rob,
2: to see some of the images from this issue?
1: Fireandwaterpodcast.com.
2: Same place where you can post uh, your comments. And next issue, it is a villain's issue. And so uh, you're going to get folks like The Joker by Brian Bolland, which is gorgeous. Uh, Captain Cold, The Eradicator, The Female
1: Furies, Lex Luthor. Who else we got? (laughs) <laughs> we got Arkham Asylum, Ra's Ghul, Reverse Flash, Human Flying Fish, Star of the Conqueror, <laughs> Mr. McSpidelik, plus a fold-out poster of the Batcave, which you can put in your locker. That's right. Exactly. That's where mine hung. So, All right, folks. That's going to do it. So remember,
2: hit us up on the social media, Fire & Water Podcast Network. Use the hashtag Podcast and uh, spread the word. Let's get on to this, because uh, until next time,
1: who's next? Who's next?
2: next?
0: Superman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of a DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and
1: Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta Phantom Stranger, Ittrick and Arisia and really and Woody Weeks. Hey hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy?
0: Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. I have giant ears, red eyes, fur instead of skin. This can't be happening. But it is.
1: I've become a a man-bat. <coughs>